Welcome back to Manhunting, in which Waypoint and friends are working through the filmography of Michael Mann and examining his themes of labor and craft, capitalist oppression, and yes, still, dudes rocking. Uh, this time they're rocking in the bygone past of uh, the United States as we talk about 1992's Last of the Mohicans. Uh, today, as usual, I am joined by, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep sticking by this. We're all maniacs. Alex Navarro, D'Alessina, you're maniacs. Welcome Indeed. to the show. I am a maniac on the dance floor, and I am. I can say that this is unlike any man film I have seen before. You know, I don't think that it actually is. I'll be looking forward to exploring this throughout the podcast. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and as a special treat, uh, we've also got my old comrade in arms from Three Moves Ahead, uh, Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome to the show. I am very glad to be here to talk about one of the most interesting historical pictures of the early 90s. Uh, And I absolutely had to have Troy on this one because this is Waypoint definitely bogarting a show that Troy and I were going to do on the Three Moves Ahead series where we look at like the treatment of history in cinema. Uh, So obviously, you know, have to have to make sure. Uh, everyone eats uh, at the banquet table of, of Michael Mann. Uh, so, Last of the Mohicans, not a favorite book of mine. Doesn't seem like it was a favorite book of any Hollywood script uh, screenwriter. Not a favorite book of Michael Mann's because everyone basically takes the broadest outline of James Fenimore Cooper's novel and seems to throw it into the bin uh, and then kind of riff in a different direction. The film that Mann actually cites as sort of the precursor to the 1992 film uh, is an earlier Hollywood adaptation uh, that I've never seen it, but according to man, is a bit stylistically clunky, but seems to have a pretty smartly adapted uh, script that draws some interesting themes out of the text. Those themes uh, come through in the broad story of Last of the Mohicans. So Last of the Mohicans takes place in 1757 uh, in the early stages of the Seven Years' War or the French and Indian War, as it is known in the at least the United States. Troy, do they, do they call it that in Canada as well or something else? No, we call it the Seven Years' War. Yeah, it makes sense. Um so it takes place during the period uh, in the war in the uh, the North American colonies where France and England uh, are sort of vying for control of the waterways uh, in the northern colonies along the border of uh, Canada. And where the story sort of opens is we're, we're sort of we're opening on um, a couple different uh like groups of characters. On the one hand, you have uh, Hawkeye, uh, a, a family of uh, like hunters and trappers, Hawkeye uh, and Uncas, who are the adoptive son and son of uh, Chingachuk, uh, who is the titular mass, last of the Mohicans, at least by the end of the film. Uh, they are, so as the film sort of uh, calls out in the opening, they are the last of a pretty much vanished uh, American tribe, and they are on the very far frontier of the colonies um, and continuing to push deeper and deeper into the backwoods to both get away from the advance of colonial control and also uh, to continue exploring the opportunities uh, that exist further west. 
In Albany, uh, you also have the daughters of a Colonel Monroe who have arrived in the United States to uh, be with their father as he is posted to defending the colonies. And they are on their way to Fort William Henry uh, in the uh, company of a British officer who is a family friend and who is rather forlornly courting uh, the eldest daughter, Cora Monroe, um, in an attempt to win her hand in marriage. And the action that sort of precipitates the, 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 the rest of the film is that they are being escorted by a company of troops, but crucially, they're also being guided to Fort William Henry, which is a far frontier fort, uh, by a person they think is a Mohawk guide, Magua. Uh, before long, Magua leads them into an ambush, uh, pretty much all the British troops, uh, except for, uh, major, major Duncan Hayward, uh, who is, who is the officer accompanying them gets wiped out and they are rescued, uh, by the party of hunters. They travel together. They go to Fort William Henry, which they find under siege by, uh, the French general Malcolm, and they are swept up in fast moving events that culminate in, uh, the breach of multiple, agreements between the colonial forces uh, serving with with uh, the British Colonel Monroe. Uh, they're also swept up in the breach of a truce between uh, Monroe and Montcalm as Magua leads his forces to try and wipe out the English all in an effort to kill specifically Colonel Monroe and his daughters as payoff for a blood vendetta uh, between the b- between the two men. Uh, one that Magua remembers very keenly, and Monroe uh, seems dangerously oblivious, too. Uh, the action sort of climaxes in the wake of this ambush as uh, the uh, as as Hawkeye, Chingachuk, and Uncas, uh, and the two Monroe girls, uh, plus Major Hayward, are able to escape the ambush and are taken prisoner. Uh, well, um, the party is separated at that point. The English characters are taken prisoner uh, by Magua's Huron warband and taken uh, to their to their village. And meanwhile, Hawkeye, Uncas, and Chingachuk uh, are pursuing them to mount a rescue. And the action of the film kind of uh, climaxes, uh, at least the dramatic action movie climaxes actually here, where Magua makes his case for all that he has done. And demands to be accepted back among the Huron and also recognized as a great leader uh, among them. Hawkeye arrives in the middle of his speech, makes a counter argument, which is that Magua has become a monster in the course of his revenge and has also adopted a lot of the frameworks of the uh, colonial powers that he opposes. Uh, the Huron chief attempts to sort of divide the child to no one's uh, great happiness. And uh, at that point, he sends the youngest uh, Monroe daughter off with Magua, uh, who's leaving in a huff, and she's being taken as sort of a a prize. Um, and so we get a final action uh, encounter in this incredible mountainside showdown uh, where Uncas to rescue uh, the younger uh, Monroe daughter uh, is bested in a fight and killed. 
uh, young Alice Monroe, rather than continue to be Magua's prisoner, throws herself uh, from the cliff. Uh, and then Chingachuk, played by Russell Means, I, I should mention, uh, and we'll get to why that's relevant uh, maybe a bit later, uh, shows up, kills Magua, and Hawkeye and Cora Monroe, who have fallen in love, uh, end the film on a mountaintop with Chingachuk as he explains that now he is the last of his tribe and hopefully uh, with his death will be reunited with them. Uh, and together, the characters sort of look forward into, for them, an uncertain future. And for us, the audience, uh, the knowledge of what we know awaits um, indigenous and colonial peoples uh, in what will become the United States in, in years to come. So that's the broad outlines. We'll talk about the specific moments a bit uh, soon. But I think for me, the the first thing I want to address is that I think for a long time I basically misread this film a lot because I thought because as a kid Hawkeye just seemed like the coolest and I loved Daniel Day Lewis in this role um Hawkeye is sort of this uh you know badass ranger uh it almost the Aragorn of the frontier in some ways in this movie and so for a long time I sort of regarded this as a movie that is fundamentally about Hawkeye and the coin didn't drop until years later that I'm not actually sure it's about him at all. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of curious. So we're looking at this from the standpoint of who has the most compelling dramatic arc. Who do we think like in terms of the, the type of Michael Mann protagonists we've discussed to date, like who, who are the central figures in this story? Well, so it's really funny because you know, these are based on a, um, God, is it a pentology? I think it's a pentology of novels by James Fenimore Cooper, you know, written in the 1820s. Um, and Hawkeye's actual name, and this is important because fuck that guy, but also his name is Natty Bumpo. Bumpo. B-U-M-P-P-O. Yeah, so the protagonist, Daddy Bumpo, skilled frontiersman, and uh, he he is the he's the protagonist of the novels. Like the Leatherstocking Tales, um, follow Daddy Bumpo, um, but like yeah, like here he feels more like the movie needed, like we needed to have a central figure that was like, you know, oh here's a white guy that like white audiences can like you know figure on, and we can like you know put Daniel Day Lewis in it, and he's. You know, he will smooth, you know, tickets. So sure, we'll go with that. And, um, but yeah, no, like, <laughs> this is not about him at all. No, it, it's not. But you, like you said, it's definitely trying to frame him that way because it seems like it just needs that kind of character. But, you know, I mean, this this movie to me, not having seen it, honestly, in at least two decades since the last time I watched it, uh, I was struck by how deeply historical fantasy this movie seems to be as opposed to like something that is trying to go for like serious authenticity or realism. Like it's an adventure film that is set against, you know, sort of the backdrop of this real life war and these conflicts, but the whole thing has the sweep and the kind of, you know, the, the gravitas of like a big old dumb adventure movie. I mean, yeah, Uh, this is, this is a romantic film. Very much so. (laughs) Like, but but you know you talk about the fact that like it it doesn't necessarily feel like it's about Hawkeye. I feel like that is most 
you don't really get that sense until the end when it's the dad that gets the big climactic fight that he gets up there and he takes down Magua. And it's like, you know, like Hawkeye's there. He's doing his thing. But like in the end, like the the person who gets to deliver the killing blow and sort of like get his revenge is his father. And so it's sort of like in any other movie, you would think that would just be the the layup, you know, the T-ball hit of just give Hawkeye this big moment. And there you go. That's the that's the big, you know, like payoff. But this movie doesn't seem particularly invested in having that kind of moment, despite that framework. I mean, I see where you're all coming from, but I don't know if I necessarily can go along with this. I mean, he doesn't get the big kill shot at the end. But throughout the film, he's the guy who gives the big speech before the Sachem. Uh, he gives a big dramatic. In, in, in the book, it, it, it is Uncas who gives that. It isn't uh, like who, who testifies before the Sachem. It's not. Uh, yeah. It's not uh, uh, Hawkeye. It is Hawkeye who helps the courier escape the fort with his uh, kill shot from uh, the fort. He is an action hero, and you know Nathaniel Bumpo is, I guess, the first great action hero in American literature. Uh, I mean, he's he, he, he is the Ivanhoe of American uh, historical fiction. Um, and now, I, I mean, I, I kind of think the hero of the story is 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 America, really, uh, in some weird sense, uh, because of the adaptational choices uh, that are made throughout this film. Um, I mean, Rob, you mentioned how nobody really likes this book, and I don't like it at all. Uh, but we have like the whole colonial militia thing that is introduced in the plot, the militia chafing against uh, British rule. That's nowhere in the book. It's nowhere in other adaptations. That is introduced to tell the story of a country coming to be um, with the foreshadowing of the curses of America on the First Nations people in the discussion before the Sachem. Um, I think, you know, Tegachkuk is... he does get the killing blow at the end. Through, through a lot of the film, he's kind of the sidekick. Yeah, it's so I think there's that. But I think for me, it's that like Hawkeye is our lens through which we understand a lot of this film. And he is like he's a critical character, as is uh, Cora. But in terms of like who has the most interesting dramatic arc right like who is the character that like undergoes a major change over the course of the story uh where where do we see like who has been transformed by this experience to a degree like you know everyone in that core group to greater or lesser extents has been but for me when i look at the film it all seems to be pointing for me toward magua that the more i've seen this film And the more I see the way it is constructed and what it is building to, the thing it is building to is not any of the like major action set pieces. Like when I, when I look at this film, it is building toward Magua being rejected uh, by, by the Satchum that he, that he is a character who is almost like, it's a bit like if the Count of Monte Cristo was being told from his perspective of absolutely everyone but the Count of Monte Cristo in some ways. it is He is this character who is on this long-term uh, hell-bent revenge mission uh, that, by appearances, 
probably pretty righteously founded, right? But he has dedicated his life to it. And he has this whole, almost like um, James Caan in Thief, actually, that scene in the diner where he pulls out uh, that, that little clip out of like what he imagines his life to be when he's got what he wants. Magua going to the village chief uh, and asking to be like recognized as a leader among the Huron. That is his that is his dream. Uh, this is like the character who's been pursuing a goal and has brought it painfully close to close to fruition here more than anyone is Magua. He's dedicated his life to it. He has become uh, a machine sort of precision tooled for revenge and warfare. And in the end, that is also what causes all of that to be taken away from him. And that last fight in some ways is just kind of like via the language of action and like cinematic violence, concretizing the conclusions that we just saw unfold in that council discussion. And so for me, that's kind of like uh, fundamentally, I, I, I do agree with you, Troy, that in a lot of ways, this movie's like really idyllically anticipating the arrival of the American revolution in some ways, though also is, is wary of it. But in terms of like the characters I find that seem to check all the boxes that I look for in Michael Mann films and seem to like seem to have the most interesting like stories attached to them. It all points toward West Studi's, uh frankly, unforgettable turn as Magua. And I think, I think for me, it's the synthesis of the two of you, right? It's because you're right about Magua being the man protagonist. Troy is right in that America is the hero of this film. And I don't know that necessarily, I can't decide if man is, if that's an accident, if because of what Magua ends up representing and who the hero of this film really is, um, and like what this, what, what all, what everything about this film, like kind of like, you know, you know, foregrounds um, is, is Michael Mann aware of that? Or is that just a consequence of, well, if we, if we make Mike, if we make Magua into James Kahn's characters from Thief, basically, what does that then give us at the end of this? Um, I mean, I, I do think that Magua is, of the characters in this movie, the most analogous to the kinds of characters that man has focused on in his films up to this point. Like, he's he may be an antagonist, but he's not a villain. Like, he's interested in sort of the, you know, the, the, the circumstances that brought Magua to this place. It never really goes out of its way to condemn him. You know, outside of like, you know, the 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 scene where, you know, basically, you know, he doesn't get what he wants. But like even there, it's very much framed in this like, well, yeah, you were brought to this place because these people screwed you over, over and over again and ruined your life in some very severe ways. So like it is at least trying to be understanding of what got him there. The only like the only real villains in this movie are the British and the French at large. Like there is, you know, there is not, obviously there are some very sniveling, you know, sort of like stubborn military characters here who sort of play like the more traditional villain roles, but it never seems like it wants to give Magua that like heel turn because there's one West duty seems like he is very resolute in not like playing the character that way. But two, it seems like it just wants to give more to that character than you typically get in these kinds of stories. 
Yeah, if we can talk about some of the things that foregrounds up front, I think it has a really, this film has a really terrific, um, like, first act. But some of the prologue uh, stuff it puts down is really effective here, just in terms of uh, both in just the, the filmmaking, but also some of the issues it raises front and center. And I think for me, like, one of the first scenes that really stands out, and by the way, I think Troy and I, you and I were talking about this on Twitter, uh, it's a mark of how much... Um, the landscape has shifted in terms of like who is currently like a notable star right now. I've seen this movie, I don't know, probably 10 times. This is the first time I've seen it and been like, well, <laughs> that, that British recruiting sergeant looks a lot like Jared Harris. And then he keeps talking <laughs> and I'm like, I swear to God, that's Jared Harris. And it is, it turns out, Jared Harris, um, who is in the, in the years since that brand of like British character actor has become like the most treasured commodity uh, on, on prestige TV, at least. But in his scene, he is situated at um, this place, the Cameron's Farm, uh, which is everything if you if you watch the commentary on last of the mohicans uh you know there there's kind of two things you're going to learn one is that man is rightfully and enormously uh proud of the amount of like practical work they did building sets uh not falling back on like digital effects and so you know they actually build fort william henry on like a 40 acre uh shooting lot not shooting lot they just build it out in the uh, you know, Carolina countryside. Um, and so this is one of the major sets they build is this sort of uh, frontier uh, just carved out of the backwoods uh, farm uh, that is under the control of his family, uh, the Camerons. Um, and, and what's sort of depicted here is the degree to which the frontier at this moment is this really porous idea where you have, on the one hand, official British rule, like technically these these people are all under the uh, you know governance of the crown, and here's Jared, Jared Harris, the the embodiment of that, uh, basically trying to dictate to the the uh, English colonials of New York how it's going to be, what they owe uh, their crown, uh, why it is in their interest. Uh, and also in their duty to come serve in the army to fight the French. But also here are a lot of uh, native peoples who are part of this community, but they are not part of the crown's authority. They are a separate people and a separate nation here uh, that, are adjacent to all these issues, but are not immediately subject to them. And then you have like, you know, tr like honest to God, uh, fr frontiersmen like, uh, like Hawkeye and his family who like, sure, technically, I guess maybe you could call us subjects to a crown, but as he puts it in the scene, <laughs> I don't call myself subject to much at all, uh, which is a funny line, but also like pretty much an, the articulation of this character's worldview, which is that the entire reason I like inhabiting the sort of this, this, this bordering space, uh, the entire reason I'm continually venturing out beyond whatever is the current frontier is that I want to live apart from this world. I do not want to live under 
like these rules and these morals. And so like that's all sort of coming through in the scene uh, where they're trying to raise the colonial militia and the colonial militia militia are kind of very much divided in terms of whether they even want to go fight this war. And certainly if they do, um, what security is going to be given to their families? Isn't it dangerous uh, to go leave their, their farms and families unattended to go fight in what amounts to a European cabinet war? Yeah. I mean, it's portrayal of the whole French and Indian war is, you know, not necessarily accurate in the details, but it's accurate in the sense. Certainly uh, in Virginia and Pennsylvania, you had a lot of issues between uh, central command of the British authorities and the militia. This is what this is one of George Washington's big complaints when he's a, well, he's a he's an officer in the Virginia militia, but he has to obey more junior officers in the British military uh, because they're British and he's a colonial, and it becomes this huge issue with him and a burned saddle for you know kind of the rest of his life. Uh, leading to great miscalculations uh, by the British thereafter. Uh, the porousness of the borders, I mean, in the, by this time, most of the First Nations uh, in this conflict end up throwing in with the French because the French aren't coming over in really large numbers. Uh, they see the French as a better bet because they're not, you know, taking over the whole land, whereas they see the, the uh, except for a few uh, nations, uh, the Lenape to an extent, uh, the Mohicans and uh, some of the Iroquois uh, Haudenosaunee nations they throw in with with the British, but for the most part, the frontier is is a uh, uh, American Indians allying with the French and Montcalm trying to figure out how to deal with them uh, becomes a big issue in the historic siege of Fort William Henry. Uh, can he control these sold these uh, native soldiers and the Canadian militia, the French Canadian militia, who we also have very little regard for? So the entire, the, the, the porousness you mentioned and the uncertainty and the debates over jurisdiction, who does the frontier belong to? What are the limits of freedom? This is once again a very American story. What does it mean to be free? Uh, you know, Hawkeye becomes the archetype for, I mean, Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett are historical figures who take on major political roles, but in the popular imagination, you know, they're wild frontier Disney characters who, you know, go out there and hunt and, you know, fight the savages and do all this other stuff, uh, the way that Hawkeye has become. He becomes this archetype to represent the frontier, the mountain man archetype we get uh, in the Ohio Valley. Uh, so this, I think man does a very good job in just the opening scenes, uh, even the, the first half hour of showing how uncertain and how unclear the future of this country is and who these communities are and what they what they owe to each other, what their obligations are. Hawkeye isn't subject to much of anything except his own internal compass and his own sense of family and his own sense of justice. It is an individualism uh, that I think has become, you know, it's become entrenched in American culture. It's been entrenched in a, lo a lot of uh, cultures. And I think he does a very good job of setting that out uh, throughout the film. There's one thing, though, about the individualism. I, I do want to push back on a little bit, which is that I think if there's something that the film sort of waxes nostalgic for or mournful about, it is the notion that this status quo, such as it is, that exists, there is no status quo, right? It's a constantly fluid, like, like boundary line. But this 
culture. Um, I'm trying to avoid the word liminal because it's overused and it's such a you know you know what I mean like it's a word that's kind of lightly poisoned. Yeah. But yeah. we're actually in a liminal territory here, where I think one of the things that like in that scene. The camera sort of basically turns away once Hawkeye's lost interest in uh, what the recruiting officer is pitching um, and the potential militia recruits have, have made their speech. Like Hawkeye wanders away and joins in a game of lacrosse breaks out and you've got. Uh, you know, it, it appears to be like some of the colonials are playing uh, a lot of the Iroquois uh, there are also playing. But I think the film consistently has this sense of if if like one of the tragedies is in play is not necessarily uh, that America is going to like mean the end of this this brand of like rugged individualism. Also, the notion that this type of community will not be allowed to exist, right? This this sort of the the this sort of intermingling of peoples that exists on the frontier is not going to be sustainable. And certainly, even if it were in that very unlikely event, it certainly will not be allowed to, uh, given the way politics is going to move and the way things like the frontier, like expansion, will become institutionalized. And sort sort of the hard boundaries uh, that will be sort of set between Indian versus American uh, don't yet exist, and people in this space don't entirely see it in those terms yet. Though obviously the seeds of that are also richly richly planted, um, and sort of in the end, the, the the film is going to also acknowledge that to a degree from the moment the the settlership showed up the writing was on the wall. But I think in this moment, uh, Hawkeye is both representative of like rugged American individualism. But I think also there's a bit of, this is maybe as close to utopian as man's going to get in this film that like, you know, maybe there's a different way for this interaction to have gone. It didn't, but you can sort of catch a glimpse of it here. Well, there's one thing that he leaves out, and the most adaptations leave it out uh, of this, but it happens early in the book. There's a conversation in the novel between uh, Hawkeye and Augustin Chingachgook, and Chingachgook's complaining about all this land used to be ours. And Hawkeye says, well, according to your according to your old men, your tales, you guys came from the West and drove out some other people into the forest, and now my people have come from the East and they're going to, then they drive everything before them. Such is the way of the world, seems to be. I can't say how the, the future is going to look like, and things might have been better because the white men lie through their books. But this is just the nature of the world. And this ties into the whole Last of the Mohicans thing, the theme of the book, and the punch, the punchline of the book that the Mohican are a dying people and have their last moment here. But most adaptations leave out that very pessimistic sense that everything's going to be kind of, it's already written on the wall. There is no future uh, for the First Nations. And I think you're right. I think you're right that the points, there is, Hawkeye does represent, and that lacrosse game, some sort of better alternative, I guess. But it can't happen as long as the settlers keep coming. And that's whole, the whole, the 
testimony mm-hmm. before the be, 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 before the Sachem, you know, what Malga would do if he follows the white man's path, it is just destruction of everything. The next sequence we get is sort of the introduction of a lot of the the British characters we're going to meet here. And we open actually on um Duncan Hayward traveling to Albany to both get his new posting to Fort William Henry, but also to renew his uh, entreaties to Cora Monroe. And we open with him looking at her likeness in a little uh, keepsake uh, uh, clasp. Dia, you, you've talked about this shot a lot in previous man hunting episodes. Uh, the, the shot that comes up, the bridge, right? <laughs> um, but also maybe... Can you talk a little bit about what you see here from our old friend Dante Spinotti, uh, who's going to become already is a major character in sort of the, the Michael Mann career, um, was on Manhunting uh, and will be his collaborator on uh, at least a few other films. Um, but this one also feels like he's operating in a different mode than maybe he does for the rest of his time with Mann. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like what you see when you when you sort of look through his lens uh, in this film. Spinotti is a wonderful cinematographer because he is so, you know, <clears throat> one of the, one of the um, kind of the jokes about, um, it's the, uh, oh God, um, the Ridley Scott film, The, the Duelist. Um, you know, one of the jokes that people, like a lot of people are like, oh, it's so painterly, it's so painterly, so painterly. And like Ridley Scott famously is like, no, it's called the, it just rained a whole shit ton during the production. So that's why it looked that way. <laughs> <clears throat> but like Spinotti really does have this sense of like, this kind of like neoclassical sense of like painting as a background. And I actually don't know if his ba- if he has a background in painting. A lot of cinematographers surprisingly do, um, or really unsurprisingly do. But um, there's the shot of the bridge, which I always joke on that, you know, man and Spinotti waited like three days just to get this shot right. Um, because it is like the perfectly mirrored colonial bridge and it's like framed perfectly with like just the trees and the bridge and the water is, you know, it's the water's got some leaves on it. It's not pristine, but it's like, you know, just perfectly reflective enough to be like natural, but like still painterly. And it is, it's, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful shot that is, you know, kind of just, it is the kind of shot that like establishes you are in a period film. Um, yeah. particularly a period film of like the 18th century. <laughs> um, but, um, and even like a lot of the, the, a lot of the, the, the photography in this, Spinotti really does set scenes up as though paintings you have seen in the Smithsonian, like, you know, we get shots that are repeatedly like even like the scene with Duncan and Cora before, like, you know, we do get in close with them. You know, it is, it is a British officer proposing to, you know, the young maid that he's in love with, um, you know, at tea in a field, like this painting exists. There's thousands of this painting. Um, and Spinotti has, has just chosen to replicate that, you know, through the lens. Um, yeah, he yeah. he arranges he does arrange these like carefully composed tableaus. A film, a, a painting that man cites in the commentary uh, makes perfect sense. Of course, is uh, you know the death of Wolf um, by Benjamin West. But but basically yes. that entire genre of 
military historical art that's enormously popular um, about a century after all these events, right? Like right. that's where that's where these things tend to be really like commemorated uh, in in a lot of these cases. Um, the, the death of Wolf is closer to uh, con- contemporaneous, but in those, all of those like paintings are meant to communicate a tremendous amount of narrative content in the frame. And even though the viewer is supposed to know the narrative context, right? We're supposed to look at that painting and roughly know not only who is Wolf, but like who are the various figures who surround him. Um, I can't remember if Death of Wolf is one of the ones where there are also people are paying to be like sort of inserted in the painting in certain places. Uh, I think that's true of the Death of Nelson. Um, but we've seen there's there's a bunch of those paintings. And in certain moments, uh, like the parlay uh, we see later between Montcalm and Monroe, uh, you see sort of the perfectly composed, um, like still image of the two men uh, exchanging a greeting. But I think for me, like one of the moments that really jumps out at me is when arguments break out like Fort William Henry um, about, you know, Monroe's obligations to release his colonials and the way all the characters end up lining up. Not uh-huh. only on opposite sides of the frame, but also layered into the backstage so that everyone is clearly readable to the frame. It's 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 very staged and composed. Um, and so if you freeze the image, you could almost take it. And the story of this moment is told through the image. Um, but at the same time, what's so interesting is that these paintings are almost universally like historical whitewashes. In a lot of ways, the ones that actually exist, uh, because they are fundamentally like works of imperial commemoration. Whereas I think in all these scenes in in motion, we have these sort of recognizable forms celebrating uh, imperial achievement, uh, like conquest. But also in these moments, they tend to accompany the moments of the most extreme like moral degradation of the imperial powers, right? These moments tend to capture hypocrisy more than courage, uh, treachery more than honor. Um, And so that's the other thing I find really interesting is that all these images are like these recognizable forms, but each time he deploys them, they're a little bit poisoned. That's the thing is like, you know, you you, you think about the the various, like the parlay and things like that and the scene, the argument, William Henry, and you get these moments where if this was a painting and there was no sound, no one was speaking, you just saw these dramatic faces and these dramatic men lined up and leaning towards each other, forming a perfect pyramid. You know, this is like this perfect triangle in the middle centered around like, you know, a contract on the table sort of deal. And like, yes, okay. In that, like, you know, when you take it out and you put it on a wall and you frame it in a big gold leaf, you know, like Rococo frame and you hang it at Independence Hall, it becomes this beacon of nationalism. But when you put that in action and you set that in like, you know, celluloid of the 90s and you have these actors actually talking and you realize what pieces of shit they all are, then it becomes like, oh, hey, wait a minute. Let's just like just rip this facade all the way down. Um, And it's great. And we certainly start getting that piece of shit vibe uh, from the Brits real quick when Hayward arrives and meets up with General Webb, only has one scene. It is a memorable one uh, in which he strikes a bargain with the militia 
uh, to guarantee their service. And then Hayward, sort of the mainline British officer uh, after the colonials are out of the room, uh, is sort of stunned that Webb would endorse sort of entreating colonial subjects to uh, honor the, the the call of duty. And Webb gives this, you know, stereotype, like the icon of like the particular form of British imperial hubris uh, that we recognize from various stories and films. <laughs> I was going to uh, say, I, I don't know if there is something written into the American Constitution that any portrayal of the British military from the 1700s to about, let's say, the eight, late 1800s has to have one of these guys in it. But this guy <laughs> is in every one of these movies, the sort of like <clears throat> sniveling, sort of dishonorable, very peevish you know, military prim and proper guy who is just like mostly there to get dunked on in some fashion or another. And makes a confident pronunciate uh, pronouncement that the French. Uh, Can we cut this line in? Because it's my favorite line in like. OK, we need cinematic to pause. history. We need to pause and we will. We are not going to hear because we all know it, but you're going yes. to hear the exact speech he gives <laughs> about the colonials <laughs> and then what he thinks of French prowess. One has to reason with these colonials to get them to do anything. Tiring, isn't it? But that's the lay of the land. I thought British policies make the world England. Sir. I see you're to serve with the 35th Regiment of Foot at Fort William Henry under Colonel Monroe. I'll be marching the 60th to Fort Edward. Explain to the Major he has little to fear from this General Marquis de Montcalm in the first place, and therefore scant need of a colonial militia in the second, because the French haven't the nature for war. Their Latinate voluptuousness combines with their Gallic laziness, and the result is they'd rather eat and make love with their faces than fight. <laughs> Making love with their faces. I just love that their Latinate voluptuousness combined with their Gallic laziness. It's so beautiful. It's, <laughs> it's honestly kind of an incredible diss, and I'm, I'm, I have to kind of respect it. And yet they sound so cool. Yeah. Um, it is... It is just an incredible uh, line. You sort of get a, you get a taste of how of, of how truly two faced uh, they will be. And of course, it's not for nothing that in the midst of all this, it takes everyone a long minute to realize that oh, there's someone else here. Um, not very important. <laughs> it's your guide uh, to find Fort William Henry. Uh, what what's your name again? Magua. And West Studi sort of detaches from the shadows uh, of this frame. Um, to sort of announce that, yeah, he'll he'll be the guy and he'll be the first thing in the morning. To I mean, take he Darth them. Mauls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like this is this is what like he's like. I will send my apprentice, and then just Darth Maul just shows up behind, like Senator Palpatine. Only, you know, in this well, one, did, Darth Maul well, doesn't suck. Did, 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 did Darth Maul, Batman. I mean, it's one of those. Depending on your perspective, right? He emerges in the shadow as a vengeful, as a figure of vengeance, right? Yeah, it's um, West Studi has one of those striking faces uh, to begin with, but um, yeah, I don't know. He is he is properly terrifying uh, in this film because he just has 
a like predatory gleam in his eye uh, in every scene. And it's just like it's like a tiger pacing the cage. Uh, right. He's so he's so pissed. They're they're waiting till morning uh, because, man, he is ready to get this revenge plot rolling uh, right now. Um, but first, Duncan has to renew his proposals to uh, Cora. OK, let's talk about this, because mm-hmm. in the commentary, man is. Uh, so I forgot the other thing that man is very proud of uh, with this film, it, not even proud. The other part of the commentary is man just talking about military history, uh, like for for a couple hours while the film runs in the background. Um, he's really interested in that stuff. It's very funny. It's a very like dad esque uh, commentary in some ways, where it's is very much like, you know, a lot of people don't give the Iroquois nearly enough credit for uh, for their democratic institutions. Let me tell you about them. <laughs> And like film just continues to play, uh, continues to going on that excursion. But one of the thing he, things he gets into is that one of the arcs in this film is the way, if not America, at least the frontiers that exist in this film is a stage for a woman's liberation. And so here in this scene between Duncan and Cora, we have the most paternalistic uh, exchange that we're going to get in the film. And as he puts it, it seems like Cora doesn't even know fully how to respond to it because she doesn't yet have like the exact language to explain why doesn't any of this feel like it makes sense and why is everyone asking like acting like it's normal? I don't know what to say, Duncan. I truly wish they did, but my feelings don't... don't go beyond friendship. Don't you see? Respect and friendship, isn't that a reasonable basis for a man and woman to be married? All else may grow in time? Some say that's the way of it. Some? Cousin Eugenie, my father... Well then, Cora. In my heart, I know, once we're joined, we'll be the most marvelous couple in London. I'm certain of that. So why not let those whom you trust, your father, help settle what's best for you? In view of your indecision, you should rely on their judgment. And mine. Will you consider that? Please consider that. Yes. Yes, I will. I'm not as confident as man that the film, like, fucking nails feminism. But I am curious, like, how you all end up feeling about Cora's role here as the female lead. Uh, is it I mean, like man films in general don't have a lot of great roles for women. I, I, I think thief is kind of one of the outliers. Thief is uh, a standout. Yeah. 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 Does this join that list or I, is it two paint by numbers? So it's really funny because, so I saw this film when I was, what, this is 92. So I was nine. My dad took me to go see this opening day 
um, because I had to go see it with my dad. Like my dad's like new Michael Mann film, James Fenimore Cooper film, you know, seven years war, American history, colonial history. We're good. We're going to go see this damn movie. And I'm like, okay, I don't care about any of this at this point in my life. Um, and I just remember watching the scene and feeling so embarrassed for Steve Waddington, like even as an actor, like just watching this scene and just being like, oh God, you are the most embarrassing human being I have ever seen in my entire short life. And like, then meanwhile, being like Madeline Stowe fucking rules. <laughs> I and like this beginning, my like obsession with like Madeline Stowe fucking ruling, um, I, so, yeah. I think I think in the hands of a lesser actress, this role could have been uh, like a real. Failure. It would have been a wet tissue. Yeah, yeah. Like, it could have <laughs> just completely fallen apart. But Madeline Stowe had. And I also am a big fan of hers, and I think she has the energy and the vigor to sort of like combat the more like you know stereotypical parts of the of the role and like give it some energy and some character that it might not have otherwise had. That's something she's actually like, I feel like she's kind of good at doing, like picking these roles where she has to be somewhat of an accessory to, you know, an ineffective man. Right. Um, But also like, you know, working in that space as best she can and owning her space that she can carve out of it. Um, So, yeah, like I think I think she does that with the very limited space that the character of Cora is afforded in this. There's there's just a lot more for her to do in this movie just by nature of it not being a movie that completely revolves around, you know, one or two guys like it is much more like, yes, obviously, Daniel Day-Lewis is the star, but like there is a bit more of an ensemble going on here. And it's it doesn't feel like this character can fall by the wayside the way a lot of like, you know, the wife and girlfriend characters tend Mm -hmm. to in man stuff. It's just the story isn't designed that way and it just can't work that way. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think you you called out how embarrassing it is, and it is. The, I think the other thing that uh, Hayward has to come across, it's a tricky performance because by the end of this, like, Hayward has a lot of redeeming qualities. Cora even concedes as much that there there are admirable things about this guy. But he is also, maybe more than anyone else, the... Uh, what we mean when we say like a man of his time. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a guy who has just brought on so many, he's, he's drunk so deeply of like unconscious assumptions about the way the world should work and his place in it and what should be the life that should be prepared for him. That it is, you feel for Cora almost the degree to which it is crushing to have to be the guy who tells him that like, hey, the life you think you're going to lead is not going to happen, at least not with me. Um, And so when he makes that desperate plea, when she's like, my feelings, this is her second refusal. She refused him in in Europe, we find. Um, She says, my feelings have not changed. And she can't fully explain why it doesn't make sense. She agrees it seems to make sense on paper. But his response is to be like, well, if you're not sure, if you're not sure, maybe you should just listen to me and listen to your dad. You know, people who care for you and trust trust our judgment about what's best for you. And to him, that's a good argument. And, and the thing is, I think we've all seen a million movies where these sorts of chauvinist types are just played as like comic 
um, yeah, comic stereotypes, right? Like, oh, look how old timey and up his own ass this guy is. Hayward, again, verges on being that. But the thing that I find like I still have sympathy for in this moment is that nothing has prepared him for the possibility that like a good eligible match just isn't going to work because like that spark isn't there. That excitement, that affection is not there. Um, And he can't handle that. And all he can sort of fall back on is, but everyone agrees it would be such a good idea. Why can't you just go along with it? Um, And so Cora ends up punting again and being like, yes, I will. I'll continue to reflect on whether this is the case. Um, It's an interesting, like Hayward too is an interesting character because he is a guy who's going to be a clown uh, for a lot of this, going to fail most of the moral tests uh, that are set before him. And in the end, like do maybe one very important thing, right? Um, And I think like it's a well-executed scene. Um, But again, for so much of this, the conflicts have to be carried by Madeline Stowe's physical performance because so much of what she's the, this task set before her is to react um, rather than like state. Um, yeah. Well, I think one of the things I think is interesting is that Haywood's character, you know, it is a kind of constancy of like being, you know, th- being this guy being very specifically this guy that allows him and allows us to accept when he does it, make the move that he does at the end um, without it feeling, you know, put upon or forced or like, you know, overly contrived. It's just kind of like, yeah, no, he's that guy. And he always was that guy. It's just that guy isn't going to keep you alive in the wilderness. He's not going to make you, you know, a happy, you know, like he's not going to be a great husband if you are kind of, you know, a strong-willed modern woman in, you know, the 1800s. Like, you know, but he is that guy at the end who is going to be like, "No, no, no. I'm going to just tell them to take me because I recognize that you are the one that can keep them alive in the wilderness and not me." And yeah, I think the only thing about him that feels like 100% genuine is the fact that he does seem to genuinely care for this woman. And yeah. you know, obviously his way of going about it is incredibly paternalistic and incredibly disregarding of her own feelings and her own desires. But like you said, he's a man of his time. And that's how I imagine a lot of people in with sort of like high ranking military, you know, soldierly stations were taught to believe it's like, okay, well, you you do this. If you're a good soldier, then you get to have this life of, you know, comfort and, you know, the wife you want and the family you want and all that stuff. So I kind of understand where it's coming from. And I think if that, like you said, if that part of that character didn't read as true, his gesture at the end would feel completely empty. But like, again, that I think the performance is good enough that he manages to make that part feel natural, even as he does these kinds of like sniveling and underhanded things off to the side. And I mean, to give credit to man, a lot of these are choices of adaptation again. Right. Uh, because you know, in the novel, Hayward isn't interested in the mild-mannered, fair Alice. And the strong, active Cora is the one who dies, not Alice, uh, in the novel. Uh, so man has adapted it so that Hayward is attracted to the strong, 
vigorous, self-reliant uh, Cora, and poor Alice is almost an afterthought in this film, which is kind of a shame. They, uh, they, they uh, do Jody Alice kind of dirty. Yeah, Jodie May doesn't have a lot to do as Alice in this film besides look sad. Uh, where Cora is, you know, she's, you know, the strong, vigorous love agent, the strong female lead uh, that would become a punchline uh, a decade later. Uh, but I think that there is some there's some adaptational choices here by man to highlight both what Hayward is looking for isn't necessarily the quiet, demure British wife. There's something in Cora. There's that strength, maybe a strength that he feels he lacks. Maybe he's just really attracted to Madeline Stowe because she's Madeline Stowe. I mean, why not? Uh, but I think there's some real conscious messaging or there's there's... It's done like this for a reason to move the love story of Hayward and Alice who get together in the novel into the unrequited love and self-sacrifice in uh, the 92 movie. Yeah, I think um sorry, did you have something? Well, I was just gonna, I was just going to talk about the source of like for the remainder of this film, we get we get I I I love this little moment when we realize how close all these characters are, uh, Alice's uh, unalloyed delight at seeing Hayward uh, is is there. Uh, that he really is a friend of the family and having just gone through this kind of grueling uh, scene with Cora uh, immediately sort of puts on a brave face and they continue to have uh, what looks like a lovely, uh, a lovely end last afternoon. So... And it does kind of bum me out that for much of the rest of this film, almost until the end, uh, Alice's character note is going to be like, damn, she's so traumatized. It's so sad. But Jodie uh, May makes having, an like, incredible the- Bloodborne NPC. Yeah, she's basically just having like the worst 48 hours anyone in that 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 particular region is having. Like she goes from this incredibly like bubbly, happy, go lucky, like, oh, I'm going to see the, the, you know, the wilderness and it's going to be fun to literally every awful thing that could happen to her is happening. Like it's, it borders on like in a different toned movie, it would be like a Disney family comedy of just bad shit happening to her. Well, it's, it's really funny because it reminds me of all of the stories of like, you know, the like, and they're like, they're like, let's be real here. These are like weird settler colonial sexual fantasies of like I was taken by the Indians and like you know but like we get this like version of that where just like it's just like no it's always just it's just a bad time (laughs) yeah you will not enjoy it there's nothing particularly romantic about it yeah and even though even though like we get this kind of like weird like you know, not like it's, it's it's unspoken, unaddressed, but like visually, like it is set up that like Alice and Uncas kind of have this thing, and like, but like the Magua part just kills it. Like, oh my god, her lady boner for Uncas is just destroyed by Magua, just like you know, running off with her. Uh, yeah, we will. Oh man, we will get to that. Uh, it is. That 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 entire denouement is something, uh, but we're starting to get to the source of at least the, the first source, stage one of the complete uh, like traumatization of Alex as we get of Alice as we get to this uh, ambush, where um, first of all, again, like this is a movie that hinges on great location scouting. 
um, this forest they they march into. Uh, man talks about he was looking for old growth forest on the East Coast uh, to sort of capture this moment as it would have existed, uh, you know, in the 1700s. Sadly, found out, hey, hey, man, they uh, they cut it all down. There is no more. <laughs> truly old growth forest uh here except for like this parking lot sized parcel um that exists in uh near near like a state park in uh i think like north carolina yeah, and actually, so actually, yeah. they shoot this scene very carefully uh to sort of like have the camera looking into the deepest parts of the forest um and to sort of conceal the degree to which like what surrounds it is replanted uh no, it's it's really funny because my dad um my dad like you know my, my whole life was my dad taking me camping and to like national like you know battlefield parks and things like that like that was that was what we did on his weekends um and so for summer one summer we did we went we went down to North Carolina and we had to go to Chimney Rock and we had to go to all of the falls that were used in the movie. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Including the chemical plant falls? Yeah. Oh, no. We went to all of it. And it was like one of those things where it was just kind of like, you know, it was actually really interesting. It was one of the more interesting because like a lot of these trips were really awful because I am not a camping person and I am not a Civil War, you know, American battlefield person. Um I don't care about earthworks from the 1700s. I just don't. <laughs> See, I um, do. I'm like, oh man, I wish I could have gone. Yeah, no, right. I was just sitting there. I was just like, wow, damn. Like, you know, you know, Patrick, my dad's all obsessed with Patrick because he thinks he's Czech. Um, but like, really he needs to like, you know, hang out with you, Rob. Um, but like, he, <laughs> he took me to these places and it was really fascinating to see, you know, having gone and seen the movie and seen the way the movie was shot and then seeing the places in real life. And as a photographer, it was really instructive in the way in which you can shape reality yep. in a photograph and in film. Um, because none of these places look like that. No fucking way. No. Uh, modernity has fully crept into all of them. Um, you know, yeah, they they were talking about um, Dupont State Recreational Forest. I think yes. is like where they thought- when Dupont's name is on there, you're gonna have a bad time. <laughs> like, yeah, and, and like, it's the most gorgeous falls in the film. It is. It is. And like it's beautiful if you find the exact right angle. Yep. And the instant you are off axis from that, <laughs> now gone. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say one thing that I did appreciate about this is that they, whatever links they went to, and while some of this definitely does not look or feel, you know, like modern, it does feel like upstate New York. Like I've been to enough state parks and yes. enough, like you know, you know kind it of, really uh, does outdoor areas up there. They they captured the feel, and it doesn't feel southern. It does feel like northeast. Yeah, I think it's the, the just the perfect quality of like the way the the rock breaks out of the soil. Um, yeah, it just does feel like rocky and like riven by creeks and lakes in a way that is very, very upstate. Um, it, it's 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 really well executed. And yeah, the degree to which they are creating what looks like pristine uh, colonial wilderness uh, from the 1700s out of, again, literally what we're talking about is a fast run of uh, rapidly falling water. That is used as a runoff uh, dumping site for a DuPont chemical plant. And like it is an incredible shot. 
And then on the commentary, man is talking about how the smell just brings tears to your eyes. Uh, and so they're having the shot pretending that, yep, we are in the wilderness uh, next to this like beautiful uh, natural wonder. And the reality is the natural wonder is also being used as a really good sewage line uh, for a chemical plant to just dump its uh, effluent. Um, so we get the we get the ambush and the sort of the the tip off that all hell's about to break loose is Mag uh, was really insistent that we not slow down that we just keep going like let's not pause let's let's go to this place I'm I'm showing you um, the water's better there yeah <laughs> and it's away from the Dupont plant <laughs> and uh. Hey, uh, Duncan is getting more and more frustrated with him and says, the women are tired. We rest now. And Magua lapses into, um, lapses into, uh, like, I don't know which, which like Iroquois language he falls into, is whether he's speaking like Mohawk or, um, Huron, um, because he is pretending to be Mohawk at this point, but he sort of mutters to himself. Uh, what he thinks of the, uh, you know, dynamic between the way the English treat their gentle ladies <laughs> and the way they fawn over them. Um, and hey, like Duncan can hear, you know, I mean, you can tell when someone's saying something not very nice sometimes. And he asks him, what did you say? And Magua turns at, turns to him, just stares him down and says, Magua understand English very well and it's just a beautiful like line of double entendre about like just before he's about to literally swing the axe right um where this is a guy who feels like he has really made a study of these people and their quirks uh and is just about through uh pretending and so he he springs his trap and crucially just before he can do that um hawkeye uncas and uh chingashuk uh, do like stumble on the path of the war party that is laying this ambush. But we get our first like battle sequence of the film. And um, I think it's a, it's a doozy. Like for me, like for a number of years, this kind of this, this both like sort of established for me, my image of like what this type of warfare warfare on the frontier, like looked like. But also in a lot of ways, it is uh, like an instantiation of myths about what happened to British European trained armies uh, heading into the backcountry and the type of war that awaited them there. And so we get a we get an action sequence where Magua triggers the ambush by brushing past Kalmini, who's in this movie for some reason. Um there's a and few then, of those like Pete Postlewaite's also in there. Like they just, yeah, they, they, they just had, had some British them. actors. They had some British actors just laying around. They're like, all right, here you go. Postlewaite makes sense. Like isn't Postlewaite, uh, he was in the Sharps Rifles show, right? He's the, um, oh yeah, uh, he was in that. Yeah. Obadiah Hakeswell. Yeah. Um, just got one of those like really menacing, <laughs> just a really menacing, rugged looking uh, English dude. But Magua uh, finds the most gormless English uh, soldier puts a hatchet in him um, and then the fight starts and the Brits are trying to fight as they would a European foe um, trying to do like mass ranks firing drills against a native opponent that is quite happy to lurk in the tree line uh, 
and just wait for them to shoot their shot and then go in. And it's a bloodbath, uh, but also a hell of a battle scene. And maybe sort of the first um, the first scene where I think the the pure spectacle that we're, that we're in for in this film starts to become apparent as well, uh, because both when I saw this ages and ages ago, uh, like on VHS with a stereo mix and then watching it. Now, after man has sort of retouched the film in places with a surround sound uh, soundtrack, um, it's just it's just an incredible sounding film uh, in addition to the visuals. And this scene uh, is just so vivid in the way like music and effects are mixed uh, so that on the one hand, like the cinematic adventure film aspect comes through loud and clear. But then so does the attempt at like documentary style realism uh as this fight unfolds which only goes so far uh because by 1992 standards i would say fight choreography is pretty great here but i think the standards of what you'd see in the late 90s um early 2000s when like wire work is becoming more common uh when there's a lot more like emphasis on actors doing all their own stunts maybe like the moves are a little bit over choreographed and slow like you can see daniel day lewis doing like a carefully timed blade drill with some of these extras uh, (laughs) as they fight it still looks really good um but definitely like if you compare this to the extremes man is going to go to uh when it comes time to like shoot collateral for instance or heat um this is a little more restrained though i also wonder some of that is some of that protecting a frankly very elderly Russell Russell means uh, in this film uh, because he's going to have to do a lot of action star stuff uh, at a pretty advanced age. Um, and so to an extent, like every one of this movie sort of moves at the pace that a reasonably fit, like 50 or 60 year old could move um, maybe just a little faster in Daniel Day Lewis's uh, case. But uh, that seems to be the approach they're taking. I just the opening of this of this battle scene with Magua just kind of you know kind of hanging back and then walking turning around walking toward like further up the the column and then just the shot of like behind Magua's head like you know almost like the way we'd like film like you know like the the way the cameras are in like character action games now really is the same like vantage point mm-hmm. and then we get the shot you can see so clearly just the smiling british soldier just like he's got a grin on his face he's just happy doing his thing not uh, completely oblivious to what is happening you know oh there's an indian walking by him that's so interesting even seems to be giving a friendly smile to the camera which he is, is wrong with he's, POV. he's giving a very friendly smile and then boom and that shot has stuck with me my entire life because that is the first time I ever saw an Indian get to be badass in tele- or in a movie or television. Um, you know, like at this time, like 90s, 92, like eh, I didn't see Dances with Wolves. That was like, you know, no one wanted to take me to that. No one really cared. My grandfather wasn't interested in it. So like, you know, the native side of my family was just like, nah, my dad didn't want to go see it because it wasn't historical enough. Um <laughs> And so, like, you know, we had, like, Danny from, like, Hey Dude, I think might have been native. Um, and then we had, like, uh, you know, 
Tiger Lily from Disney's Peter Pan. Um, maybe Northern and Exposure. I'm trying to think of like so we're saying we're saying slim pickings here. Like it was really, yeah. really pathetic. And when it was, it was you know Graham Crean, you know, who was just kind of like friendly, a little chubby. He was like you know kind of your grandpa who just like was nicer than your grandpa. He's um, the uncle who gave you your first beer, you know, like, like he doesn't really he is like an action hero. Yeah. Um, and then we get fucking West Studi just completely caving in a British like little like jerk off's head while he's smiling. Hell and then yeah. before anyone can react, when he pulls the uh, musket up into a hip shot and like it blows away the next dude before anyone can react and then it's just gone. It is it's just gone. Oh, good. Like, that was, like, so crucial. Being able to see, like, a native dude, like, going rip shit, like, that was a game changer in 92. And certainly, like, this scene, uh, and I think probably the, the later ambush scene are both trying to get across uh, some ideas. And I, this gets, there's a lot of mythologizing about British performance in the Americas, both in this war and uh, particularly in the American Revolution, where like there's these mythologies of like, and they were just unprepared for these wily colonial riflemen shooting from, you know, behind cover and refusing to fight open field battle. And then, you know, you read more of the history and it's like, George Washington is like, I need some motherfuckers to fight open field battle. And the like predominant problem of the colonial army is, could anyone please, for the love of God, go fight uh, in a line? But the other thing is like part of the story of like the British experience here is that they do get a lot better at waging this kind of war very, very quickly. Uh, they learn how to fight a uh, backwoods uh conflict um in, in a space of years but i do feel like maybe at this stage its portrayal of a completely out of its depth and unprepared british officer corps and army might actually be a pretty fair diagnosis of what's going on for for the for the red uh, for the uh, the redcoats in the 1750s um this is the Braddock expedition, right? This is the Battle of Monongahela, mm -hmm. uh, where Braddock, you know, uh, with George Washington at his side, goes to Fort Duquesne or to disarm and take Fort Duquesne and is uh, ambushed. And just his column is entirely, is pretty much entirely destroyed. Uh, Washington has like three horses shot out from under him and nearly escapes with his life, barely escapes with his life. Um, that is, was one of the defining uh, encounters of the British in the war. And that happened before the Seven Years' War even started in Europe. That was like 1755. The war in Europe hadn't even started yet. Uh, and Braddock was annihilated. This is this is this is this is Tudorburg Forest. It is, you know, a line traveling and getting caught when it's not doesn't expect to get caught. Um, this is again an invention of man uh, for the story, but I think it is there entirely for the narrative purpose to show that the British troops, the British redcoats are out of their element, that they are not just colonizers, but in a way they are invaders. They do not belong here. They are out of place um, and do not and should not be giving orders to the colonials and should not expect to have a permanent empire here. 
Um, and I, th- I think it's a very well done ambush scene. I think it is, it, it's small scale. This isn't a huge line like we'll see in the uh, massacre after, after the fall of Fort William Henry. It is just a small squad expecting, thinking they're surrounded by friends or at least quiet, trusting their guide and then getting the line annihilated. This was the sort of thing that happens to imperial armies going through land they think they own. This is not the, they aren't the, it wasn't the first army uh, to have that happen to him. Braddock's army wasn't the first. And uh, Hayward's little squad would you know, kind of be an example of the sort of thing the British wouldn't counter, or at least be very afraid of. Uh, for a long time. After Braddock's expedition, they set up, you know, parallel lines. They set up scouting to avoid this sort of disaster again. But this was, this is Monongahela. This is a fictional Monongahela uh, on, on a smaller scale. I think it's, I think it is very well done for 1992. Um, I think it, it stands very well today. And I, the, the surprise is a legitimate surprise. Uh, I think both not the actors look surprised. And I think if you are seeing this film for the first time in 1992, you know, you kind of get the sense because, you know, Magua creeps out of the darkness that he's not the nicest guy. Uh, but you're probably not expecting the scale of this. You don't expect just three people to survive this. Um, I, th- I think it's a very, very well done scene. It's very funny later, later in the film, I think, uh, Duncan quotes a casualty figure where and and Hawkeye. This might this might have been added in later actually by Man. There's there's three versions of this film. Uh, there was a DVD release where he added more battle scenes. Um, and it's like, like five minutes longer than theatrical cut, but the version that's out now on Blu-ray and everywhere is like 114 minutes. So it's just a couple minutes longer than the theatrical version. But I feel like I don't remember in the early versions of this film the implication that anybody survived that attack but the characters now at the end of the fight hawkeye says your wounded should your your wounded survivors should should walk back to albany um we can continue on foot but and then hayward later says like 18 were killed uh in this ambush and man i watched the scene a bunch of times i've seen like the shot of like the the british column at like after the fighting stops <laughs> Everybody's dead. I don't know what anyone's talking about. <laughs> like everyone's dead. Like the only British characters who still have a pulse beside the main characters are guys who are clearly like about 20 minutes of like agony before they expire in the woods and become like ant food. Like it's just it's brutal. Um but right as so the other thing that comes through here is there's this is personal for Magua. He wants to personally split heads. Um, and then once the ambush is, is underway, he starts trying to carve his way uh, toward the Monroe uh, sisters uh, who are uh, preparing for a last ditch. Like Cora is armed. Um, Cora is armed. Uh, Duncan is is preparing to, to make a last stand here. And then right on cue, we hear a volley of shots ring out from the woods. Bunch of uh, Huron fall and out come uh, our 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 woodsmen uh, to the rescue. And they immediately just start buzzsawing through 
uh, the the Huron. It's, it's it's very much like okay, now the heroes have arrived, and there's only one person in the war party uh, that's on their level, and that's Magua, and he sees where when a fight. Uh, is lost and kind of vanishes. But we do get the, to that theme of you do not belong here. We get Hayward not able to really identify that there's a second party of Indians who've just shown up. And he starts trying to like draw a bead on, uh, I think I think it's Chingachuk yeah. as he goes into the woods to chase down one last Huron. Um, and Hawkeye grabs his gun, points the barrel toward uh, toward the sky, and just says, in case your aim is any better than your judgment. Uh, this movie has a lot of great one-liners. Yeah, <laughs> it, does. it really does. It's just brutal. Uh, but yeah, this the complete contempt of, we have rescued from this, but we have to acknowledge that you had to be really incompetent to find yourself in this predicament. Um, and so they agree to lead uh, the Monroes and Duncan on to Fort William Henry. But first they come to the Cameron's farm and discover that it and the people who live there uh, have all been destroyed. And it was clearly a uh, punitive war raid and not just uh, banditry uh, because all the, all the valuables include, including clothes uh, were left behind, which I do appreciate a movie pointing out that like clothes used to be really, really valuable. <laughs> and so like you would strip the dead because shoes, clothes, linens, these things are enormously valuable uh, back in the day. But all of this has been left. Um, it was clearly um, a massacre for the sake of carrying on a massacre. And we get our first real like heated exchange between Cora and, and Hawkeye, Cora wishes to give these folks a proper burial. And she doesn't realize that these are the closest family friends uh, that their new companions probably have. Um, and Hawkeye sort of angrily tells them, like, these people are not strangers. And, you know, they stay as they lie. And that sets up their first, like, evening conversation, which I think is one of the important like statements of purpose of this film, which is sort of these contrasting these worldviews um, where she asks Hawkeye later. What trend, like what was really the significance of what transpired back at the Cameron's farm? Who were they? And why doesn't it bother him that there's no, that his friends aren't going to get a grave. They're not going to get, a burial. And so he tells, he tells two stories. One is a, uh, Iroquois creation myth. And the other is kind of the creation myth of the American frontier. Uh, we'll talk about the, the first one, the, 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 the origin story of the Camerons. Uh, something's very clear about here is these are folks who were indentured servants, um, in Virginia. As he explains, they, they were seven, eight years indentured, uh, in Virginia. And once they were, their obligations were discharged, um, which is the privilege that, uh, white indentures had that was not extended to, uh, African slaves. These folks lit out for the land they'd come here to find, except of course, all of it is taken in the, um, uh, what's the way to, 
what's the what's the term to it? The colonial term for like the the granting of colonies. Um, Charter. Yeah, like all all the land there is basically taken and spoken for in the like official charters, and so people like the Camerons have to push out um, in order to find any sort of opportunity for land and trade uh, that isn't already taken or monopolized um, in the more settled parts of the colonies. And I think that's something else that, you know, I think there's a, there's a strain of, if not, I don't know if man is so, we talk about in thief, how like <laughs> the, the, the speech James Kahn gives is very close to just like straight, straight socialism. Um, and I do feel like there's there's a lot there's a lot of that undergirding man's work, and I think some of that's here where there there's this understanding that people like the Camerons, um, on the one hand, they're the tip of the spear in some ways for settler colonialism. On the other hand, they're enormously sympathetic figures because the opportunities given to people like that were so pre- like prescribed. Um, that of course these folks had no choice, uh, at least as far as they could see it, uh, then to push deeper into, uh, a land that's not their own in hopes of making part of it theirs. Uh, and so that's, that's his explanation of like, what, what are people doing out here? That's kind of, that's kind of course question. Why are these people here? They're so far beyond any of the traditional colonial trade. Like, why are they here? They're subsistence. They're doing subsistence farming, uh, you know, in an enormously inhospitable place, and it looks like an enormously hard life. And Hawkeye's response is, "Because that, believe it or not, that is better than the alternatives uh, presented to them." And these folks are also an exploited underclass, um, and their presence here on the frontier is kind of a kind of proof that sort of the American dream already at this early stage in like the 1750s is proving to be nothing more than like magic beans. Well, and that's kind of part of the design as well, right? Like the idea that like, you know, you're sending these people out there to these, you know, fringes of, of territory that, you know, we, we only have the barest version of control over because in the end, if they're successful, then that is a foothold for the, quote unquote, civilized part of the colonies to come in and then assert their order over it. When if it doesn't work out, whatever, at least none Mm -hmm. of the people that we actually care about got hurt in the process. The other story that Hawkeye lays out is this notion um, that to a degree, like all creation is a collective monument to humanity um, that we are, we are part of this like physical universe uh, and everything we consider nature. And so as he sort of puts it, um, you know, the stars are the monument the Camerons receive and Hawkeye a foundling himself uh, sort of thoughtfully concludes my parents too. Um, that for people like him, you don't need, you know, sanctified church land or anything like that to lay people to rest. Like they're always, they're both not dependent on those forms, but also they are never gone uh, in that sense. Um, 
And then we start to get a little bit, <laughs> if there's any doubts that we're, that man is operating in a romantic old timey mode. Uh, we get Madeline Stowe explaining. Yeah. Yes. Sir. If this makes sense. And, uh, she tells him that indeed nothing has been more stirring to her blood. Um, and if it weren't for those dastardly French and Turan, <laughs> um, they might have had sex on that Indian battle uh, burial ground they were hiding in. Um, that's how that's how moved she was by that speech. Um, but we we do get the arrival of like a pursuing party, um, sort of looking for stragglers, and they are saved uh, by the fact that. Even here, as as Hawkeye has sort of explained his own like view on how like we process mortality, uh, they are themselves in another tribe's uh, burial ground where they have built stands in the trees uh, to to lay their dead. And, and so again, you get like these these sort of layers of different traditions, or again, sort of intersecting uh, out here and sort of coming to regard uh, one another. Um. I don't know. Like I, when I was a kid, I always viewed the scene as like kind of corny, a little overwrought. I still might think it is those things, and yet I think I might also think it's really beautiful. I don't know. How did how did this stuff land for you? I mean, I think for me, it's emblematic of kind of what I said at the top, which is that I don't really feel like this movie is like the other man films and and projects that have come before. And part of that is that he is giving in, I think, a little bit more to sort of the grand sweep of the, you know, big Hollywood adventure film in a way that he has not even really tried to do before. Like the closest he got, I think, is something like The Keep. But even that was sort of like a weirdo horror story kind of (laughs) built into a historical fiction like this is this is the kind of movie I I associate more with like an Edward Zwick or something like that. You know, the kind of person who made their hay just doing like these big grand sweeping, you know, battle and romance adventure type films to varying degrees of quality. But here, like, I feel like when man is giving himself over to that style and that sort of like kind of what the story demands, uh, it kind of be that way. He's actually doing it quite well. Like he's, he's, he's acquitting himself, but he's not just doing a like, a riff on like all the other kind of like historical action adventure films like it, like it still feels at its core. Like there are some man isms in there, but you know, it, like I said, like it's stuff like that scene. I just don't think I, I feel like I would see in anything else he has made up to this, this juncture. Like, I think it's really, it's, 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 you know, the fact that you brought in Zwick, you know, I just, in some regards, this is a last samurai. You know, like very literally, of. you know, like Haw- Hawkeye is, um, I don't remember the last samurai Tom, Tom Cruise's Cruise. character. The Tom, Tom Cruise, Cruise. He's, guy. Yeah, he's, he's the Tom Cruise, you know, character, you know, who, who is better at that Indian shit than the Indians. Um, you know, just like Tom Cruise was better at the samurai shit than the actual samurai. Um, and like, there is that, like, you know, there's the, the romance and like the, you know, the blossoming romance and things like that, you know. Um, uh, but I, and I think man does manage to kind of elevate this beyond like kind of just the baseness of an adventure film, even though maybe that's because it doesn't quite realize that that's what it is. 
Like, I think man might be thinking he's doing something a little bit more elevated than just an adventure film, even though this is purely a historical adventure film. Um, but I do think it, the aspects where he maybe is trying to like, you know, apply some elevated notion to it is what makes it stand out a little bit more from, you know, kind of just sort of the 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 usual kind of like Hollywood slop when it comes to this sort of stuff. Like it feels like, yes, he is making that kind of movie, but he does feel like he is at least trying to make it his own way. And it does read in a way that feels at least a little bit different from from the average one of those. Yes. I mean, I don't think I don't think it being like a Hollywood adventure movie precludes it being a masterpiece, right? Like, I mean, this is the I think this is kind of the, the weird thing about man in a lot of ways is that he's a highly technical uh, like craftsman who exists in these like really heightened genre spaces, but also along the way, he does tend to make films uh, with some like sometimes like pretty profound uh, like meaning, but also sometimes maybe not even necessarily the meaning he is intending to bring across or, sure. or it is landing differently. And I think that is that is certainly happening uh, here. Um like I, I, I do think, I, I think fundamentally, um, man is much more convinced that this is a meticulously researched historical epic. Um, fundamentally, like centering on, fu- fundamentally centering centering on the the action of this of this film, uh, in which like it is commenting on the passing of this moment, and I end up thinking that when the film is at its strongest, it is, um actually much more about the, the transience of this moment uh, and, and its meaning. Um, but it is also a meticulously researched historical epic. And we get a taste <laughs> of that in the next scene, uh, which is the siege, um, which I've seen it a million times. It's still an astonishing uh, sequence. This is some of this is on Twitter um, to my partner chagrin. This is the, Rob tunes the surround sound uh, setup uh, <laughs> sequence. Um, it has been for a number of years. Like we move into a new place. I'm putting on the siege to make sure. Cause remember the other thing is the soundscape is really like complicated and it's really like positional, right? Every right. single gun you see fire in this corresponds to a sound coming from somewhere else through your speakers. And so this is a scene I watched again and again to make sure like it just sounds right that I f- seem to be surrounded by Montcalm's siege works, um, which are which are incredibly realized here. Because, again, as, as I sort of said earlier, they built this entire fort and acres and acres of like actual siege works. Can I, um, can I tell you something very briefly, Rob? What? Because it's important that you understand how I watched this film in contrast to how you watched this film. Yes. I watched it on a $60 projector for from a um, company on Amazon that I do not know even has any other products and is probably just a name ascribed to, you know, a warehouse full of just crap projectors. Um, it was, it says it's 720p, but I doubt that. Um, with one uh, quarter watt, I think, want to say, speaker? No, 
No. Um, projected from the corner of my bed, lifted nope. up with three books to angle on the ceiling above my bed in like the most intense trapezoid shape imaginable. That is how I watched I this movie. I wish I did not know that. For the first time <laughs> in I love knowing 30 this. years. Amazing. Truly, this podcast contains multitudes. <laughs> This is so, it, 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 we broke off for that. We you know what? It fucking rocked. Still, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of shaken. I'm like, dear, we could get you up here. Like, we could, we could just sort this out. No, like, I, I got, I've got, you know, my big TV downstairs. Actually, if I don't watch it downstairs, it would still be on like uh, one watt TV speakers. But yeah, yeah. No. Um, I might uh, put the headphones on for it. But it is, um, I don't know. It, it's and it like first of all, like it. It cranks up that soundtrack again. It looks incredible. Um, Troy, how do you feel about the siege warfare? Do you do you feel like liberties are taken? Or do you feel like is this the best depiction of very formal siege warfare of the uh, of the age of reason? Uh, I don't know if it's the Baltimore well, one of the only. Uh, so <laughs> it's true. Probably, it's a short list. Yeah, it's up there. I mean, this is a legendary siege. Uh, it's central. It's a very important uh, siege in the, in the war. It is Montcalm coming down from Quebec and, you know, taking, this is kind of a major fort. This is a gateway to the West from New York. Um, they're expecting reinforcements from General Webb, the half-wit at Fort Edward, and he's not sending any. Um, we have, you know, the mortars. We have the gunfire. Uh, we have, you know, Colonel Monroe explaining how difficult the situation there is. They are so they're digging this trench so many times per day, and here's how far away they are. And you know, Major Hayward Duncan's not very bright, but but the, 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 but the, the, the boy really knows how to do math because he says, "Oh, you have three days then." It's uh, Just he does the math that nobody he, needs him it, to do. It's amazing. He's got not a clue, but he can do arithmetic. Uh, and you know this isn't this wasn't, this wasn't a long siege either historically or in this uh, film because it's kind of a hopeless situation. Uh, they did not expect Montcalm to come down, and it does not take a lot to take down a fort that is undermanned, uh, underarmed. Uh, if you have, as Monroe says, and his guns are bigger than mine. And that's kind of what it comes down to. The really neat thing I think about the siege is how it ends, where we do have. Uh, the parley between the two generals is very much, uh, you know, late enlightenment, age of reason, 18th century gentlemen armies fighting it out. Uh, on they fight it out, then they talk it out and say, Well, here are the terms you can go. Um, you can't hold up here. And the siege is the conclusion of the siege is in many ways more interesting than the battle itself, but we do have. This whole issue of how do how do we get the daughters in there? How do we sneak them in? So it's the issue of getting around the pickets and going at night and surprising Monroe with his girls. It's like, oh, my girls, what are you doing here? Which is a very, very good question. Uh, so why they didn't just turn around. But I guess then you wouldn't have a story. Uh, it is, I, 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 the, the sound is just outstanding, as you note, uh, throughout the film. I mean, just, I, I didn't, my setup's not as good as yours. Uh, but it is, the, 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 just the visuals and uh, the festival of sounds. Uh, and, you know, also very importantly, 
uh, we have the negotiations in Montcalm's tent with Magua, uh, who is kind of a wild card here. It was a wild card for uh, the French in general. They have Magua and his allies, his people, they have their expectations of what the siege, how the siege should end. They want things out of this too. Uh, Monroe, uh, uh, Monroe has, is, of course, the target of Magua's personal rage, but you know, it's historically, the First Nations had their own war customs, and their own war customs required them to get, you know, a lot of booty and a lot of uh, prisoners uh, because they'd been deprived in a siege beforehand in a previous battle. Montcalm had deprived them. Uh, so they have their expectations in, in this in this scene that Montcalm has to deal with. And there's kind of a hint that Montcalm's going to, like, look the other way. Uh, you know, what's up to you is up to you. Uh, this is this. Uh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say this is interesting. This is another choice by man. Yep. Man talks about this on the commentary that you know, Montcalm, despite being on the other side of this war, still ends up being sort of memorialized as a French Canadian national hero. Yeah. Um. There's also there's also a, 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 a painting of him dying. It's it is not as good as the one of Wolf. Sorry, Brock. Uh, Wolf. Wolf. <laughs> Um, but man makes the argument here that, um, you know, you, you read some of the, uh, like apparently one of his aides to camp, um, left a really great, like narrative of, uh, his time fighting this army on this campaign. And man alludes to some sources indicating that indeed Montcalm may have been looking the other way a little bit at what was going to go down in the aftermath of the surrender of Fort William Henry, because the story that Montcalm puts out and a lot of, and becomes sort of the accepted version of this is that the native allies sort of surged forward and started undertaking a massacre and some looting uh, to the horror and shock of Montcalm. Um, and here Sacre in this bleu. film, pardon? Sacre bleu. How yeah. <laughs> well, and then of course, you know, Montcalm, in the wake of this campaign, does sort of recent conclusion that he would rather fight the rest of this war, mostly relying on his handful of regulars um, and militia rather than continue to rely extensively on the native troops, um, which, you know, probably a huge miscalculation because that's the only real source of manpower that he has. Uh, but this ends up being like this. This campaign leaves a sour taste in his mouth, apparently. And he. Uh, does start to move away from this dependence on uh, native forces. But in this rendition, Montcalm is actually much more in a who will rid me of this troublesome priest uh, type mode here with Magua. And the film sort of has this set up as um, Montcalm almost as like corrupt mafia don in some ways, sort of like tacitly giving permission uh, for a for a massacre, but wanting to make sure that it can't actually be traced to him. Uh, and so it, 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 I mean, it's a very modern look at yeah. the war because the terms are, oh, they go on parole. You can't fight for a while. Like This is your timeout. Like you're playing a, a game as a kid. A timeout, you have to stay in your home base for like five minutes and then you come out and you can fight again, which of course is the way 18th century paroles worked. But it's kind of ridiculous if you think about it. 
Well, and my column is probably rightfully skeptical at these things. Right. Even back then, these things are not always observed. Um, the, these term eventually a lot of guys who do end up getting parole do work their way uh, back to fighting in the theater of operations. And McCollum, who desperately needs to like stem the tide of incoming Brits, um, you could sort of see being desperate enough to. Uh, it sure would be a shame if an entire regiment and a capable commander uh, don't make it out of this. But this is the this is the move that that man makes, and this is sort of. Like on both sides here, we have these icons of what appear to be like Western martial virtue. And in each case, these prove to be hollow facades. You know, when Colonel Monroe hears about the massacre, immediately you see sort of shoot across his face the recognition that like, oh, if the Huron are attacking up and down the frontier, I'm going to lose my militia. He knows exactly what that update means. And immediately, without a second thought, decides to wheeze a lot of the commitments that Webb made uh, to the colonial militia. Um, and Duncan, when sort of pressed on this point, uh, also then lies about what he saw and backs Monroe's uh, play. And so, you know, by the end of the film... You could certainly say that Monroe is a skilled commander and a physically brave one, but certainly ruthless um, and like morally a bit bankrupt. When we hear the story of like his relationship with Magua, um, it's easy to believe that he would be that kind of man. Um, likewise, Montcalm, boy, the scene in the French camp. Uh, I never understood because I didn't know that much about my colonial history here. I figured it was just a depiction of like the English do war like this. Meanwhile, the French bring a children's choir with them. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Nope. That is a local cat. That is a frontier priest uh, bringing his native students to Montcalm to show what good little French Catholics uh, he's creating by teaching them to sing yeah. like hymns uh, yeah. to Macomb in his tent. But it's such a striking, it's such a striking moment. Uh, it gives you such whiplash, but also gives you a sense of like the difference in approaches to colonization and also the different style that like Macomb is projecting as he is making these rounds and sort of um, accepting all these offerings and markers of respect uh, being offered by these tribes in the middle of waging this like high speed campaign. It's such a small little moment, but it does, you know, reflect, you know, a real serious, which would be a long-term problem uh, for the first nations uh, that uh, allied with the French, not simply uh, because of the erasure of their culture, which would carry on uh, through, you know, residential schools in Canada, well up into the late 20th century. But uh, the Huron were like chased out of their, uh, ancestral lands by the Iroquois because the French would not sell them guns unless they converted. It was an important part of the French alliance that they're, they, you have to go get Catholics, then we'll sell you guns. The Dutch and English traders had no such compunctions. Uh, so the Hanasani and the Mohawk would, and the Seneca would get rifles and they would chase the Huron out of their historic lands. Many of them ended up settling, settling in New York, some in Ohio, some in Michigan. Uh, but many of their Great Lakes uh, lands were chased out because of the French insistence that Catholicism be a big part of their life. Um, 
So the 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 Catholic influence on the French alliances and the importance of you know here's the civilization we're bringing. So as we're breaking, we're breaking is the church, not just disease uh, and fur traders. Uh, we bring Catholicism with us, and it's such a small little moment, but it really does kind of send. You don't see any of that uh, from the British side. They're just kind of seen as occupiers, and the civil they bring the civilization of the bullet. Whereas the French are kind of, oh, we're going to, going to convert you all and bring our own little insidious imperialism. Well, well think, if you convert, you don't need to bring over soldiers. I mean. Yeah. And I was just going to say, like, and I think the other thing is Macomb is such a perfect little weasel in this film. Uh, as he meets with Magua after they have this, made this agreement. Um, Monroe has sort of seen that the jig is up for the fort, no matter what. Like, all he can do at this point is just uh, get a lot of people killed for absolutely no military reason uh, anymore. And so McCalm agrees to this parole. And Magua asks McCalm, are you really happy with this deal? And they're having this beautifully, immaculately lit scene by the water as uh, it's almost like the way the light in a pool looks at night, that is sort of what what is meant to be glinting off the river um, as they have this conversation um, in, in the wilderness uh, on the shore, on the shores of Lake Champlain. And Mago asks, are you happy with this deal? And when calm does, yes, he indicates, I am concerned that the British will not honor this parole. And I'm just going to have to fight this man again and again uh, throughout this war. And it is very clear that Macomb fully knows that Magua is looking for sanction to carry out this attack uh, on the retreating British so that in that in that attack he can get at Monroe. And he reveals the reason why he wants to do that, which is that uh, in some previous uh, like colonial skirmish, uh, Monroe and his Mohawk allies raided a uh, raided Magua's village, burned his home, burned his village, and Magua was taken and rendered a slave by the Mohawk. Uh, and all of this was done, uh, like at Monroe's behest or under his oversight. And Magua, in time, becomes becomes a becomes a Mohawk. Uh, becomes one of uh, the tribe of his captors, but has been looking to get back uh, this entire time and been looking. And when he when he tried the first time, he discovers that, you know, his his wife has moved on, um, that she is she's remarried. Uh, his children uh, were killed in the attack. So his he really has nothing uh, from his old life. And so all he has is this mission uh, for revenge. And. That is the path he sees to getting peace, that he's going to do to Monroe what Monroe did to him. He's going to kill his kids so that Monroe knows that just like Magua, um, he will leave nothing behind, that there will be nothing for him to pass on. Um, And it sort of dawned on me me this time that I think one of the reasons the the Sachem toward the end is so skeptical of Magua is it feels like 
Magua is the only one who doesn't realize the degree to which he has put everyone who follows him in a dangerous position that that he has allowed himself to be used for like an illicit attack and what certainly the Western powers will regard as a war crime um, all without any anything that actually proves that like this was Montcalm's bidding um, that Magua is so busy seeking permission here that he doesn't see the absolutely enormous risk that Montcalm is letting him and his people run uh, in order to do this. And I think that ends up being kind of a key feature here is that the, the perfidy is, is so thick here um, that, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to recognize that in some ways, maybe French rule rule was preferable. Um, Certainly that anything was preferable uh, than what the creation of the United States would mean for native people here, but like the French are still the the better choice between uh, like the English and the French. But even here, you still have a pretty manipulative and self-serving colonial like master and ally relationship. Um, And Magua doesn't necessarily see the traps built into that. So we also get the... Oh, this is key. So we get the love scene, um, which, by the way, we actually do get a great exchange of like smoldering glances between Daniel Day-Lewis and and uh, and, and Madeline Stowe. Um, and by God, they are some smoldering glances uh, where, where she asks him, what are you looking at, sir? And he says, I'm looking at you. And her gaze falls and then comes back up with the camera. Ah, great moment. Also great. The soundtrack. Uh, Alex, I seem to recall ages ago, and I think you've, you've stated this theory uh, on this podcast, that Michael Mann's sonic uh, like identity is basically like the vinyl CD carrier you have in the uh, visor of your car. That is correct. Did you watch the commentary? Do you know where this... Where this um, violin theme comes from no i didn't get a chance to watch the commentary so the only thing i have on written down here as far as the soundtrack is concerned is that uh at some point in the early 90s every hollywood director got past the same clonade cd apparently But other than that, I, I think the soundtrack and the score is very good. But that was the only thing that, like, super stood out to me. Yeah. So the, but that little motive, the uh, the, the violin motive here, and we'll, maybe we'll pause here and we'll play a sample of this track that plays uh, during their love scene. Okay, so this is where we talked about the theory of Michael Mann as secret wife guy. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Mann heard this song on the radio 
and yeah. was like, hey, this is pretty this is pretty nifty. It's got kind of a Celtic, like old timey feel. It might be good for your movie. And he was like, I love it. Oh, my! Oh, so, so this is the Clannad song. That's right. Yes. Um, but but this particular this motive that's going to be used in yeah. multiple tracks uh, at different moments, this this sort of that that sort of like violin, that little that little violin motive. Yeah, apparently like. That is, it runs in the family. Uh, Michael Mann's wife was like in the car on an errand and heard this and was like, oh, this has got to make the movie. Wow. And he was like, you're absolutely right. Um, it sounds like it's from that era and it's absolutely the right tenor. And so from a random, from a random uh, radio play, uh, he ends up, sort of, it sounds like he ends up scoring the latter half of this film uh, around this, around this track. Incredible. Mrs. Mann, you, you've delivered big time here. Yeah, it's, um, you know, and and who knows? Maybe maybe this is also the depiction of like, this is what Michael Mann feels like a, a healthy relationship is like. You just know, you know, you don't even need. Mm-hmm. Why even bother establishing it that much? You just know. Well, and so the, the uh, main theme of this, this is from what is uh, Doogie McLean, this is Scottish uh, singer songwriter. I think was the one who did the the main theme of this film, wasn't it? I knew Trevor Jones was the like the composer, but I thought, yeah, Doogie McLean, um, who is like you know Scottish singer songwriter. Um, so we get the Scottish singer songwriter, and we also get Clannad. So we get two people who very much know colonization by the British. Mm-hmm. The um and actually he's actually kind of like he talks about how it was very important for him in the background because again the Michael Mann thing is every character has like a novel length backstory that you never hear about <laughs> in the film but he talks about how the Camerons of course of course uh, they were from a population of Scots who were settled there by the British to exert colonial control in the border states uh, between England and Scotland and of course they become themselves sort of a dispossessed people and so court like. Very interested in sort of these layers of like how colonization is actually part of the British imperial experience going back to before contact uh, with North America, um, which, you know, is kind of an interesting frame to to put around all this. But uh, also, it's very funny uh, that, yes, um, at the cli- at the climax of this film, uh, we're 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 doing Clannad. Yeah, uh, that's that's what we're going to. Here's your here. incredibly moody, ethereal Irish singing that apparently, again, I think just about every Hollywood director between 1989 and 1994, they just all got into it around the same time. Is there an Enya and Clannad association? En- Enya was in Clannad. Yeah, she was. Oh, yeah, but she, she got too big. Yeah, she's the one who got big. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, Clannad was very much a family band that she was in, and then she sort of broke off. But the family band continued after that. Um, it's not bad though. It's a good track. No, it's a good, good song. Totally Here's like Clannad's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it's Clannad definitely is used the start of Patriot Games, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah yes. Like most of Patriot Games is Shit Clannad in the way that most of Blown Away is U two. You know, like they just they yep. really hammer on it because Irish. But, you know, I'm not a big new age music guy, but I think there's a lot more going on with a with a group like Clannad than like, say, most anything else in that space. Um, so we get the uh, we, we get the, the, the retreat from 
Fort William Henry. Uh, the column is ambushed. We get our last sort of epic battle sequence where yet again, uh, a column is slaughtered. I do want to call out uh, the way this fight begins, the slowly escalating sense of unease as they walk through this clearing. The fact that a few of the uh, Her- Huron uh, sort of burst from the trees and begin sort of these random, random probing attacks uh, that just further unsettle the column. That, like nobody can see what's going on. So it's mostly just like faint sounds of skirmishing happening. But I love that shot where you get these sort of crescendoing musketry all the way up and down the line uh, as the entire fight breaks loose and the column uh, like falls apart. Uh, it's it's great stuff. It is it is such a wonderfully staged production. Um, and once again, the British get utterly wrecked. Um, also, man, if you're if you're of Mohawk descent, I feel like this movie might do you dirty as well. Um, this, this movie is here on propaganda, to be honest, because those guys are the only guys who seem to have their shit together at all in terms of just like laying the hurt on people like it is the Huron and then like French military engineers and then like everyone else is down in the cellar of uh, of martial prowess uh, because, yes, the the attack goes off. Um, the British are completely wiped out. Um, Monroe is brought down and, uh, oh, is it brought down is maybe <laughs> the understatement of this well, entire series so far. I didn't, I didn't, he was brought down. I didn't, I, mean, I didn't Temple complete what happens once yeah. he's on the ground. Magua straight up Kali Ma's that motherfucker. <laughs> Again, Dia, and like you talked about things that are just stuck with you. Um, I think it is the way Monroe's legs twitch while Magua is carving his heart out from his chest. There's something that I really appreciate about this scene, and it's that it's that man allows it to happen instantly and have it be over quickly. Um, this is not a lingering on the slow cutting out of Monroe's heart. No, Mug was cutting Monroe's heart out in the middle of a fucking colonial battle. Like he, he's got to cut this heart out and get his fucking, you know, and get going. Like, um, and so we do the scene quickly. It's, you know, yeah, he just kind of digs in there. Monroe's on the ground and Mug was in his chest, ripping it out. And then he's like, okay, got it. We're out. Bye. Not seen the rib spreaders he would have needed to do. Like, I'm just like, how do you get that out there, man? You must be so strong. West Duty is real strong. You. He's that determined. Yeah. Um, he He's real angry. Um, and then, yeah, he's got places to be. He's got to tell. I, I do like that. Also, he just audibles here. He's like, you know, I was going to kill gray hair seed and wipe it from the earth, but gray hairs right here and like all hell's breaking loose. I had to kill like one dude to keep him from killing Monroe. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to tell him, I'm just going to tell him your kids are dead. Uh, he'll get the message. Uh, so gray hair, I don't have time to do this right now, but I'm just letting you know I'm going to kill your kids. Now I'm going to eat your heart. Um, so he rips his heart out and then the pursuit is resumed. Uh, Duncan has managed to escape with a red coat, but also definitely a red shirt uh, in terms of his ultimate fate in this film. (laughs) Uh, And then 
Um, Hawkeye and his family rescue the Monroe girls, and we have a canoe chase leading to uh, some falls where they cleverly conceal themselves in a, in the rocky outcrop behind the waterfall, but they suspect this this uh, this this hiding place will not hold up, and we get another sort of iconic moment, which is um, when the 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 stay alive uh, speech as Hawkeye realizes, like if as he as he puts it, if we stay here, there's going to be a fight. Everyone's getting killed. There is a chance if you're taking prisoner that we can fix this later. And so, uh, in this incredible location where you got just deafening water pouring over the head of the actors, um, <laughs> you know, you you have this like harrowing final scene before uh, Hawkeye and his family jump into the water uh and the rest is the rest are taken prisoner um once again like i cannot i cannot imagine yeah like maybe am i giving too much credit here this movie looks impossible to shoot like when i talk about the siege that looks like a nightmare it's dark as hell the frame lighting alone seems impossible Yeah, yeah no and then the waterfall yeah i was always convinced this is a sound stage like i I, I would believe it if, like, you know, you told me no on the 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 the, the commentary. Michael Mann like lays out exactly where the shot was, but like it it seems like an impossible shot. Uh, all the light is coming from like through the waterfall. Like, and then what? when and then when the Huron arrive with their torches, yeah. that's also like sourced around them. But as but as Mann points out. You can't shoot by firelight. It's not enough light to expose film. So you no, have to you have light to use the, scene. the Apollo like um, Zeiss icon <laughs> lens. You want to shoot by candlelight, and then you need a lot of candles, as Barry Lyndon teaches us. <laughs> <laughs> um, and apparently, like it, it sounds like Spinotti's, uh solution was like he's still using a lot of set lighting. He's just being so incredibly careful with it that it always looks like light is falling off properly from whatever the in-scene source is. But like everything in this movie, I'm just staring at thinking like, I don't really know how you, I like, is this I don't know how they made this it, movie right? for $40 million, even in 1992. Yeah. Every single setup and every single thing they did feels like it must have been the most expensive shot in the movie. They built a fort. Yeah. <laughs> like Fort William Henry. They they built an actual fort and then they blew it up. Like, I don't I don't fully like and that's another reason why I just love this thing. It's all extras. It's all it's all effects. And they just uh, built a fort. They built a fort and then they dug like trenches and earthworks and all this shit around it. Like all of the props for this movie. Like they're talking about like, incredible. You saw the first call call time for the first wave of extras to hit makeup was like two in the morning. Uh, because with thousands of extras, of course, you have to start at two in the morning if you're going to hit a morning shoot, right? Um, and shit, yeah, I even forgot one of the shots I wanted to call out. That shot where they're helping the couriers escape. And you get, I don't even know what time of day like the, today this is, but That is sky. one of those shots. Yeah, the, the, well, I mean, God, even the lighting there, like what is going on? Um, it's an incredible shot because there's barely any light. 
the sky is pitch black except for that bit of it that is fringed uh-huh. with like the last of like it's either first light or the last of dusk. Uh, I, I can't remember what time of day the escape goes, but either way, it's like I've maybe seen that once in nature. You know what I mean? It's just like I don't know how you got it. And but see, here's the thing: is like okay, you can see it in nature. Your eyes are much better at seeing light than celluloid is, and this is not of digital film. This is not a film where you can go in and you can crank no. the gain up and deal with it later. Like this was celluloid and this was like, you know, it's really not that grainy. Like, you know, I remember seeing it like in theaters and like, it wasn't like super high speed film that they were using. Um, so like the light that was there is not all getting into that celluloid. Like, so you know, like the, and like the scene where the, the couriers are running away, it is underexposed. Yes. Um, but it works so well and it still manages like it's, it's really underexposed, but it's not blocked up. The shadows aren't like, you know, like big, crunchy, hard blacks. They're like, you know, you can make out what's happening with all of the action. And like, it lives this sense of like, you know, actual kind of danger to, you know, the moment where like you can you can kind of see where things are happening, but you can't predict them really. Um, well, and the shots aren't like static. It's not. You no. know I mean? It's not like he's got a camera in a fixed position. No. And like he's carefully arranged one frame. Like the siege opens on a long dolly shot uh, paralleling the battlefield, so we see all of it uh, and its choreography. Most of the time in the fort, we are moving through it with different characters uh, through again these challenging lighting conditions. And at every point, like it is. The other thing I really admire about it is it's immaculate, but it's not showy, if that makes sense. No, no, um, it's not. It, it's not like waving. It's like I'm thinking and I, and I like I like what Spielberg did a lot in Saving Private Ryan. But Saving Private Ryan is a movie that's very much like calling attention to look at the tenix, techniques we are using to sort of put you in this. Well, that's, um, that's Janusz Kaminski, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think it had to be right. Yeah. Janusz Kaminski is incredibly into his techniques and 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 showing off his prowess um at coming up with kind of clever shots so that makes that makes total sense yeah. there but, but yeah but here it's it's just not it's not flashing in that way but at the same time like the more you think about it uh the more impressive it becomes and yeah to your point like the, sh- the film also looks great. Like, I mean, I know there's an entire aesthetic now in various remasters where people even try to push up the film grain uh, because people like think like, ah, now I can really tell I'm looking at the source film, uh, which sometimes is true and sometimes is completely bullshit um, that there shouldn't be that much grain on the film. But certainly it does not look like Spinotti is is like pushing the film so hard that it like. No. If, and if you look at French Connections night shots. They're completely they're they're all noise. Um, that's yeah, not if, happening here. If anything, Spinotti is more than happy to um, like in the seed shot when we first get to you know for William Henry, you know it's the torchlight that's providing yes. like the illumination, the sense of illumination, and Spinotti is more than happy to let half that shot be just drenched in shadow. Um, you know, if we think about like kind of the, the zone system, the Ansel Adams zone system, where you had, you know, gradations of, of exposure and like, you know, he would only, you know, this, this Spinotti's fine. If like, he's like, you know, if he's got one like zone of highlights, one zone of midtones and one zone of shadow, he's fine with that. He doesn't need like six zones. 
He was like, no, let's have intense contrast, you know, you know, gradients here. Let's, let's just go with it. You know, that's what nighttime by torch looks like. Um, whereas now, you know, we have like, oh, it's nighttime out. Everyone is like flatly lit, uh, you know, yeah. except for, <laughs> except for that, like, you know, the, the, what is it? The, 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 the tragic game of Thrones episode that everyone watched oh, streaming God. on HBO and it looked like shit because of the compression of the shadows, like that was kind <laughs> of going for the same sense, but you know, well, but one just did it a lot more confidently. Yeah. And I will it, say this is more than yeah. just about any other movie I've watched recently. This felt to me like one that is like kind of begging for an HDR release, but it also feels like the kind of thing where the HDR release they do might actually just fuck up the whole look of the thing. This is the Blu-ray already looks tremendous. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're ha- you have to be like you're sitting there wondering, right? Like, I sure hope that negative is in like pristine condition. <laughs> and I hope the decisions they make in the tra- in the transfer are really good ones. I hope whoever does all of James Cameron's denoising doesn't get ahead of the, a hold of this thing. Yeah. Um. So they do. They do pursue uh, Corin, Alice, and Duncan to the Huron village. Um. And here we get like, this is Magua's big moment. This is Magua getting what he wants, and he has brought. He brings his trophies uh, before uh, the 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 Sachem. And a quick aside, actually. Um, so it stuck with me for years and years is um, in fourth grade, one of my teachers, Mrs. Webb. Oh, this is well, an aside aside. Okay. <laughs> this is an aside, but it is, it is relevant. All right. Um, her husband was a native man and she brought him in for, but he's also a native man who was a, a history nerd, right? And so she brought him in for a little like show and tell, but it's also sort of meet my husband. But we were, we were touching on the point in history because I think fourth grade is where they taught specifically the history of Indiana, the state of Indiana, um, which, by the way, not a lot of great history there. Um, but, you know, there, there's there's a fair bit. Well, one of the, the most like significant battle fought in Indiana is the Battle of Tippecanoe. And her husband comes in to give us a lecture about the great Tecumseh, uh, the, the, this great, um, was it Pontiac chief? Shawnee. Yeah. Um, his Pawnee. Uh, yeah, Shawnee. Shawnee. Oh, Shawnee. Um, his sort of last stand, the, the fact that he assembles this massive uh, like native coalition to face the American army uh, in Indiana and explains like for him, at least uh, for, for, for the guy giving this lecture uh, for him, like this is one of those last best chance moments, right? Where like, this is maybe one of the last times where if you could have united all the remaining like tribes and like made a concerted push, maybe you could have stemmed the tide. Maybe you could have started like averting what's coming. But either way, the 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 heart of the story is that as part of Tecumseh's like plans for like building the coalition and preparing for a favorable fight, he has to leave the army uh near the crucial uh like he doesn't know there's gonna be a battle, but he leaves the army and leaves it in the hands of his brother, 
who is sort of the like religious chieftain of this army. If, if Tecumseh is like the head of military operations, his, his brother is like the religious chieftain and his brother in this telling gives in to full like messianism and leads the Indians to a disastrously premature assault on uh, a, an America, a U.S. army position and the army is shattered. And at the end, like Tecumseh comes back and like takes stock of like the ruin of all his hopes and is left to confront the fact that this was all done at the behest of his brother. And it was a really moving lecture. And it wasn't until years later, I sort of realized that if you looked at it another way, and I don't know if this guy like meant to bring that across, but it's certainly a thing that sort of lurks around stories like Tecumseh's a little bit is this notion that, well, Tecumseh had the right ideas, right? He understood like Western military tactics. Uh, he understood the stakes of what they were up against. And he was like making his play. And if they just hadn't done all that Indian shit behind his back, they might've been able to like clean this entire mess up. And that is kind of the subtext and and certainly this is this is kind of like uh you know what what Montcalm kind of the conclusion he reached about some of his allies as well which is just that these traditional ways of war like don't work against western armies um but when i look at this portrayal of magua i sort of think is that it, it's not that dissimilar from maybe this mythologized tecumseh type figure of Someone who studied the enemy, understands the stakes, has made the adaptations required to confront the scale of the threat. And the question the scene proposes, and I think it's sort of lurking maybe behind that long ago lecture in fourth grade, is that is any of that actually good? Um and I don't, I don't know. I, sometimes I, I look at this and I feel so bad for, for Magua specifically because in some ways he comes here for recognition, but he finds a tribal elder who just doesn't see any good options, right? And is, is trying to, to hedge his bets. To some extent, Magua's argument that like we should become a regional imperial power seems like he might be onto something. But the the counter argument that, that Hawkeye makes, even though I think it's for our benefit, I think maybe the Satchel already knows this, right? The Satchel is so ambivalent about what Mog was bringing him is this notion that if this, if this were a good idea, we would have already tried it, right? You know, if it were that easy where we will just, we will just adopt the ways and philosophies of our enemies and turn those against them that if it were that easy, it could be done, but there are other factors in play. And so I, I when I look at the scene as, Ma, as, as Magua tries to make this case for his solution to this dilemma and the way that solution is greeted, uh, the way that the arguments that are levied against it, I find this an enormously complicated scene because I think there's a lot of, sensibilities that want to avert this genocide that is hurtling uh, toward native peoples here. 
But on the other hand, there is this there is this sense that, you know, as as Hawkeye puts it, Magwa's heart is is twisted, uh, that there is that there is something here that there's the, the path Magwa is pointing is not open to the people he wants to follow him. Um, and, I'm, and I'm curious how you read all this scene. Like, are we are we meant to completely agree with Hawkeye here in terms of his view of like, which amounts to the liberal, like, don't do it. You'll be just as bad as they are. Um, I'm just curious, like how you, how you greet all this and, and, and the framework of like native resistance uh, that sort of surrounds stories like this. Well, there's a lot going on in that scene, right? I mean, it's not just about the Imperial project versus some idealized, you know, first nation life. I mean, this is a, rhetorical gambit in many ways by Hawkeye, right? I mean, he says, oh, you're going to be selling alcohol to your brother, to your brothers, the Algonquin, and you're going to corrupt them just like the white man does. And nothing Magua has said necessarily implies that, right? It doesn't necessarily imply you're going to be trafficking in booze and selling whiskey. Um, it is just the two are connected in Hawkeye's mind and probably in the Sachem's mind. So he assumes that one goes uh, with the other. So it's a rhetorical device and the power of Hawkeye's personality is there as well. Uh, we also have, I mean, Magua wants more than one thing here, right? It's not just he's advocating a strong uh, United Native response. He wants to, you know, have all Monroe's seed wiped from the face of the earth. He wants to have everything destroyed. He wants his own personal vengeance as well. Uh, so Hawkeye's rhetoric is targeting that personal side, and Magua gets half of that at least. You know, one of the daughters is sentenced to death, and the other one he can take with him. Uh, so he kind of wins on the personal level, but loses on the big geopolitical level. Well, the other th- interesting thing here is that this is ultimately kind of a duel of two next generations of adoptees in a way, mm. you know, um, both Hawkeye and Magua are Mohican adoptees. Um, you know, Magua is like, you know, like not, not white, but, um, they're both like, you know, technically part of the same tribe. Um, and they're, they're having this argument well, hold on. Uh, about, are, are the Mohican a subset of the Mohawk? Are there- I thought, I thought Hawkeye was adopted into the Mohicans. Am I wrong? No, Hawkeye's, I in, the, no. Hawkeye's in the Mohicans. Yeah. But Magua was... Uh, oh, no, he's, he's in Mohawk. That's right. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. No, I missed that wrong. But, but, but the I mean, point stands... The point is he, that they're both, they're both adoptees. Yeah. yeah like, um, and like they both have been... They both have been disconnected from their initial context. Um, and they're kind of like, you know, as much as Hawkeye is arguing at this point about, you know, how Magua is twisted and he is going to, you know, kind of corrupt the ways of, you know, the Native American peoples. Um, it's like arguing it from this place where it's just like, dude, you're white. <laughs> like you are a white settler that like got, you know, found um, and happened to grow up in this. And it's, you know, it's interesting to note that like, you know, the rest of, uh, you know, the rest of the character this very clearly will point out they're like that's his white son you know that's mm-hmm. like you know um my father's people like it's never hawkeye has never really claimed ownership of you know the tribe that he's adopted and yet he's the here now speaking from this point of like you know not necessarily wrong but intense self-righteousness all the same 
Whereas Magua is speaking from just this place of just, just absolute devastation. Um, and so you have these just kind of like two very kind of honestly fucked up people <laughs> trying to make a bid in a world that does not care about their position ultimately because America is going to come through and steamroll all of this. It doesn't matter. Like, I do think that man here definitely feels like they are mirror images of each other. Yes. You know, like yeah. it's like you said, they're both they're both adoptees, but one had, you know, as idealized a version of that story as you could have where he was taken in by these people, taught their ways, had like a very, you know, by by those standards, like I would say like a kind of, you know, almost charmed life as this, you know, this, this kind of free, free roaming rogue with his family, just kind of going and doing their own thing. Whereas Magua, you know, everything was taken from him. His entire life was just like thrown into shambles and disarray. And like, all he has is this thirst for revenge. And the movie, it, to its credit, never goes out of its way to like speechify that in really like literal terms. But you can tell that man is having like is definitely like framing this in the yes, Magua is twisted, but also these two characters come from similar backgrounds, if not identical. And there is a certain like similarity, a certain synchronicity between them, even though if ultimately, you know, they're obviously never going to be able on the same page. And I think one of the other things and ultimately, I think. A lot of the rhetorical posturing here is, I think, beside the point, because I think the decisions the Satcham makes indicates that he's already already identified what are the key issues, what are the key issues, which aren't this grand question of like, what is to be done about the arrival of the settlers? As he puts it in the part where this is not a debate, where he where he sort of opens his his opening remarks in this conversation, you know, this is a debate that have that was old by the time he was a boy. He is an old man now, right? Mm-hmm. And when he was a boy, elders were already debating what are we going to do about this. And his conclusion at this point is that, and he, it's a great line. He says, uh, "You know, when the settler ships arrived, night entered our future." Um. And so for him, he sees sort of this this onrushing uh, tide headed at the, headed at them. Now I think Magua's argument might be, you know, that's that's defeatism that like that would be self fulfilling. But I think what the what the Satchim has recognized, even as the situation is laid out for him, is that a bunch of English people, including women and kids, just got massacred by Huron. That's not going to be forgotten. You know what I mean? It's like it's like, not Ma- going to solve the problem. Yeah, and Magua is showing up here, being like, "Hey, guess what I did?" And very <laughs> what he did might be the thing that gets everyone killed, right? And so the Satchem, his decisions in the end are: Is there any way we can smooth this over with the English? Right? Like his decisions are ultimately okay. Magua has a good point, um, and he's entitled to his anger. So we will execute one of the daughters. Um, the other will live with him uh, as his wife or or chattel. Um, and then the English officer goes back to the English uh, as he puts his sword. Their anger will burn less bright. And 
very much this is him just trying to get out of the situation, which I think is is a very like I think it's a it feels like a pretty apt depiction of these sort of like colonial these these calculations in light of colonial powers that tribes had to do up and down the frontier. Which is how do we balance uh, these immediate interests with the fact that we're dealing with people with almost limitless capacity uh, for like carrying grudges and carrying out reprisals. Um, And Magua doesn't see like the danger of what he's done Um, in part because he's still maybe too young, too driven by revenge. But like he doesn't see that the Satcham just wants to get out of this. Right. That like when the Mm -hmm. when the white people start fighting each other. You stop fighting each other. The next thing that happens can't be. And then they come and sell the score for Fort William Henry. Um, And so I think that that always feels like that is ultimately like what he is trying to do here is it's an unsatisfying resolution, but is the only one he sees that like, you know, at least helps the maximum number of people and keeps people safest for the foreseeable future. And as for this broader question, this broader existential question, he doesn't have solutions. Neither does Magua. Um, now that pisses Magua off. <laughs> um, and and uh, and this is the part that does got me. It isn't just that the the Satchum kind of refuses the the pitch that that Magua is making, but as he puts it, um, you know, he's been a capable leader and we owe him a lot. But his path has never been the Huron one. That Magua's entire journey to get back to this point results in the the profoundest rejection, right? That like he considers himself deeply to his bones, Huron. Um, and here he has finally achieved that reunion, uh, you know, with, with the tribe, uh, stands among them as a leader. And the elders are here saying that like the things you have done to get to this point have rendered you unfit to be with us. Um, and West Studi, like West Studi, brings across all the devastation and anger and grief uh, that his char- that his character lives with in every scene. And the scene is excruciating to watch, uh, but it's a it's a beautiful performance. And of course, Duncan kind of saves the day here uh, by doing doing what he men like him are, are sort of ideally raised from birth to do. Uh, which is die nobly uh, for for a vague cause um, and a a sensation a a sense of gentlemanly obligation uh, when Cora is going to be uh, executed. Um, Hawkeye asks to be taken uh, instead, but Duncan changes the message and says, "Take me, burn me, a British officer." Um, and so Duncan sacrifices himself for Cora. Um, he is burned at the stake. Hawkeye uh, gives him a mercy killing uh, with his with his rifle, and then they go to rescue Magua and uh, not rescue Magua. No, no. Alice from there's Magua. no rescuing Magua at this point. Yeah, uh, and just an incredible sequence. We get the uh, we we get the pursuit along the cliff face. Uh, we get Uncas taking his best shot at uh, Magua. It proves to be not good enough. And here here's the other thing. Um, so he is beaten early in this fight and the rest of the fight is just making Magua kill him, right? He knows from the first exchange of blows, he has no prayer. Um, 
And the rest of it is just him uh, going down fighting. And I always feel like my, my question for you is this. So after Uncas gets his throat brutally cut and you see the arterial spray on the bottom of his jaw, it's horrible. Um, again, things that have stuck with me since I was a kid. Um, Alice moves to the edge of the cliff. And Magua drops his knife to his side and gestures to her to come forward, to come away from the edge. And I'm just curious, what's going to happen? Is Magua done? Is is Magua is Magua wanting to administer this coup de gras himself, or is he done? Is is the revenge quest discarded at this point, and he doesn't want whatever's about to happen to happen? I'm curious your reading of this. It's funny. I don't think I had actually sat there and thought about what he actually wanted in that moment yeah. until now, because you know he's given the daughter you know, in, in vague terms, but it's sort of generally understood that like she's his prisoner, you know, and it will go from there. But I don't know. Cause in that moment, like he doesn't seem like he doesn't seem like he is anxious for her to die. You know, like he doesn't seem like he wants that, that necessarily that outcome. But when she does make the decision to, to throw herself off that cliff, he also doesn't seem particularly perturbed by it. It's more of just like a, all right, well, save me the trouble, almost kind of gesture. But like, but I also don't get the sense that like he's necessarily going to go out and kill her, you know, once he's had had his chance to settle down and decide how he wants to go about it. No, and this is like one of the problems with West Duty in this film is that West Duty is doing like 60 different emotions at like every single moment. So like when you look at his, when they, they, you know, they do like the, 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 and this like the, we, we haven't really talked about this, but this whole last bit of the film is, it's like its own little weird self-contained short film. It's like completely yeah. different part of the movie. There's like and it's almost paced completely differently too. It is completely different, you know, and we just have this like that, that like that Celtic colonial like fiddle drone that just yeah. keeps looping and looping and looping for like the last 10 minutes of this movie. And it becomes this own little weird little self-contained art film. And that's what I think really sets it apart because we, even the fight scenes here, the fight scene with Uncas, that's not a normal fight scene, even for this era. Like, you know, it is, it is completely this weird, you know, it's, it's like in kind of a, a strange, like the timing is off. It's like not quite slow motion, but it's like the the two uh, Uncas and 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 Magua are both acting kind of, you know, almost like a stage fight, but like, you know, for real. Like it's it's very weird. And so when you get this lingering shot of like you know between like Alice and Magua. And like Wes Duty's face is looking at her and he does this, it's such a very quick kind of, you know, almost like, you know, it's, it's an anxious hand, like, you know, come over yeah. here. Um, it's not like a come over here and it's not a get over here. It is a very apprehensive kind of gesture. It's and it's like, like the way you gesture to a pet that has maybe like gotten outside <laughs> and is about to jump down from a balcony and you're like, no, 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 just come come back here. Please come yeah. back here. Don't do that. No, like he is a rec he's like, you know, Magua is actually recognizing another person's humanity for like the first time in an entire film. Like let's <laughs> that's what's happening here. And yeah. I don't think Magua knows what to do with that. 
<laughs> like for all certainly not purposes, with the child of his enemy, right? Like in all intents and purposes, Magua has both like has neither won nor lost. You know, he he made his bid at great personal cost um, and great you know kind of you know institutional like you know and, and cultural cost, and this is where he's at now. You know, um, what's he got left? Well, maybe the potential for something with this traumatized white girl um, who is the daughter of his enemy. Like, you know, he's got, you know, he has like very little of his particular war band left. Like there's not a whole lot going on for him. You know, he's just going to go off into the woods. He doesn't have a tribe anymore. Um, Like, but he, in this moment, he really does kind of like seem to, at least in some regard, like, you know, notice that Alice is a human being who is teetering on the edge and is going to jump off this cliff because she is just so traumatized and scared um, and does not want to go with Magua. Um, you know, in some ways it is Magua seeing, you know, himself through her after having been told, like, you know, who Magua is by like all these other outsiders. This is kind of the first time Magua really has to take stock of himself in a way. Um, this 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 whole sequence, yeah, I was say this whole sequence, like, and I the, for anyone else on the cast here who is who has actually read the book and knows what they're adapting from, I'm curious if this scene plays out or this ending plays out in even a vaguely similar way because this, well, I don't think the end of this movie is bad by any stretch. I think it's it's maybe not my favorite part of it, but I think there's you know it because of the way it's paced and the way it's structured, it has the feeling of a sequence that was written very late in the process. Like it was, it has the feeling of a, we had to reshoot an ending. We had to rework this in a way that is not necessarily the way we had it mapped out. But I don't know if that's actually true or not. Well, I mean, this isn't in the book at all. I mean, okay. <laughs> there, there's a, a, a cliffside chase. Uh, it is with Cora, not Alice. Right. And uh, Cora is killed, but she's killed by one of Magua's minions. Yeah. Okay. Uh, as she tries to escape uh, or free herself, there is no dramatic suicide uh, in the books, as far as I can recall. Um, so it's this isn't, but this is adapt. This is this type of thing has been done in other films. I think the mm-hmm. silent uh, last of the Mohicans has uh, Cora fall off a cliff, uh, but it's accidental, not suicide. I've been I've been watching speed watching a lot of adaptations of this uh, story because <laughs> it's just so interesting how everyone does it differently, and I think Man does it you know better for uh, a lot of different reasons, probably because he makes so takes so many liberties. Uh, but- so I, I I think that I mean what. Uh, I don't know what Magus's emotions are here. I'm not sure if he's, I mean, yeah, you said that she, he sees her humanity and I'm wondering why now? Yeah. Because <laughs> I mean, he's, he's been, he's been, you know, holding her captive. He's seen her trauma through the entire time. And it's only now after he brutally kills uh, Uncas uh, that I, I, I'm not sure. Sh- I think he still sees her as a possession, uh, she's also like the, the only thing he has, right? He's just gotten through this whole judicial process. And this is his prize. This is all he gets out of it, is her. I think to lose her is to lose the entire reason he's gone on, the last thing he has of this mission, the control over her. Whether he's going to kill her later or make her his war bride, this is... Th- this is his prize. This is his token. This is the symbol of his victory. 
Uh, and I think that's what he's losing. I to me it is so like his look is is so hard to it is so ambivalent. Very. Uh, the the fact that the knife isn't held away right it is it is at his side held almost as if forgotten uh, but at the same time like he is such a capable and menacing figure that like it still presents a, a threat for me I just I look at this and it just feels like this entire like everything about his body language here and I think especially culminating in the fight that's about to happen. It is like from the ruling of the Sachem through this, all the fight is being taken out of Magua. That out of all of this, like his triumph with the Huron has been denied uh, and is rapidly turning to ash. Um, he just killed. Uh, he just killed a young uh, Mohican kid. Um, that's what he's come to, right? Is is that uh, you're 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 ending up, uh, fi- you know, fighting children uh, effectively, and now this kid, you you are such a monstrous figure to this kid uh, that she will throw herself off a cliff rather than come a, a foot nearer you. Um, and when she does it, it just seems like another body blow to him like it his he doesn't like he's very matter of fact in how he takes it in but at the same time it's it feels like yet another blow and and to your point troy like yes like this is you're right everything he's expected to get out of this including now this this paltry peace offering uh from the satchel which is uh go ahead abduct uh monroe's blonde daughter even that now just gone, uh, and he's effectively walking into exile with his dwindling bad band of followers. And I think that sets up why the confrontation with Chingachuk feels like an execution. Um, because here, what we have is just as Uncas never had a prayer, um, fighting, uh, fighting Magua. The moment he ends up fighting uh, Chingachuk, the fight is equally just completely out of of Magua and Wes uh, Studi's performance. That in the end, he's sort of, again, perfectly framed against this backdrop. It's like he's waiting for Chingachuk to do this. Uh, that like in this fight, he is a character who is looking to be dispatched um, by by another elder. Um, quick thing here, of course, uh, I mentioned it earlier. Um, this is Russell means, uh, first film role and probably too much for us to get into, but Russell means is a pivotal figure in the like scandals and showdowns with the FBI that took place around the Pine Ridge, uh, reservation. I think Russell means is Lakota, um, and the, the politics of the Indian movement uh, of the time and his his place within them and what what is happening at the Pine Ridge Reservation are enormously complicated. Um, and I will confess there's extensive portions of it I don't fully understand. Um, they were also dramatized in a pretty good movie, uh, Thunderheart. Um, is that Al Kilmer? That yeah. is Al Kilmer. Yep. 
Um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a pretty cool movie. But you are literally uh, the first person beside myself I've ever heard say the words "Thunderheart" was pretty good. Yeah, it's it's memorable. Uh-huh. I liked I was, it when I was a kid. I don't know if I, 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 I watched. It. I have not watched it in a long time. He does become more Indian than the Indians, right? He's yet another like mm-hmm. he's an FBI agent who goes out there and like vision quests a crime to get like solution. Is that it? There's God. a lot going on. It's been so I don't think I've seen that movie since like 94 when it came out. But uh, I do remember all I remember is Val Kilmer. And it is very much the thing you said of like he has to become even more of a native than the natives around him in order to deal with whatever's going on. Again, it's been 25 years since I've seen it. I cannot remember. Um, But that the movie is a very loose adaptation or right. dramatization of some of the issues uh, that are going on in reservation politics and the uh, like sinister role of government agency agencies uh, around it. But Russ Mays comes from this background of like direct action and protest movements. And uh, and, and so it's an interesting touch that he appears in this movie uh, as sort of this, um, you know, elder warrior figure, uh, when that is this kind of the path that he, he sort of tried to identity, he sort of, uh, car- tried to carve out for himself, uh, in his political life. Um, in this fight, uh, he's been, you know, he's got this incredible mall, uh, that he uses that it, it looks like a giant blade, but also it just seems to like just shatter bones. Uh, the fight is again, a uh, very brutal dispatching. We get maybe our last like perfectly composed and sage shot of the two men facing each other, uh, at the edge of this abyss, uh, before Russell means clubs, Magua to the ground, uh, and his men sort of scatter. And so we get to the end of the film as they conduct a ceremony on on a mountaintop um, for for their dead, uh, but particularly for for Uncas, and you know the the novel is is Last of the Mohicans. That's the name of the story. Um, but I think, for me at least, at the end here, I think it's interesting that. Chigastrug is drawing this line that that he is the last of the Mohicans that to this question that's been sort of shot through this of like Hawkeye being an adoptee, but also, uh, you know, more native than a lot of the natives that surround him. It's very clear here at the end uh, that the line is being drawn, right? Uh, That being Mohican is not a path open to Hawkeye. Uh, that when when Chingachuk is gone, that is the end of his tribe. And Korra and Hawkeye have a different future ahead of them. Um, and it's, you know, ambiguous what that future is. But I appreciate that this film sort of highlights the familial relationship that does exist between like Nathaniel and Chingachuk, uh, but also at no point is there any question that like whiteness can be put down, 
right or or cast aside that you know there's no there's i i imagine i feel like there are lesser versions of this film where at the end like no you know we will uh we we will honor and carry forward this legacy it's not a legacy for them to carry forward um that in in the end uh this connection between these people is is going to be severed uh you know, by, by Chingachuk's eventual death. Um, and that will also be the severing of the, the connection of the Mohicans, uh, to, to the present and to Hawkeye. Um, I'm curious how the ending lands for you. It's one of those endings for me that feels like, uh, huh, this is, this is, you know, there's a little bit of white guilt in the script mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Um, also, like I, I swear to God, I remember like I so I watched the um, uh, director's definitive cut or whatever the the hundred and fourteen minute one. But I swear yep, right. to God, um, at one point I watched a version that had a much longer speech from Chingachgook in the end, where like he gets into like you know the the future of the the future of America basically. Oh and, no. Like, um. It's just like, you know, like basically this is like, you know, and eventually like you won't exist either, my white son. Like this is all just going to be America and there will be no place for any of us. Um, yeah, that was probably in the original home video version, which was at least another three minutes longer. Yeah. So it's, it's is this it? Oh, did you find it? I think I might have. I think I might have found a script for it. As the fun, the frontier moves with the sun and pushes the red man out of the wilderness forests in front of it until one day there will be nowhere left. Then our race will be no more or be not us. The frontier is a place for people like my white son and his woman and their children. That's my father's sadness talking. No, it's true. One day there will be no more frontier. Then men like you will go too, like the Mohicans and new people will come work, struggle to make their light. One mystery remains. Wait, this sounds familiar. Shit. This sounds familiar. Like some of that is in the final bit. I think I've seen this cut. Yeah, there's, there's parts of it that are in it. You know, Hawkeye, what is that? Will there be anything left to show the world that we ever did exist? And then it just cuts to them standing out in the wilderness, it looks like. Yeah. I think they probably made the right call not going with that. Yeah, because I remember seeing it at one point and being like, that wasn't in, like, I think it was, it must have been the VHS because I rented it at one point, like, you know, and being like, I don't remember this ending. And it feels weird. And, you know, that, that particularly, it's a good, they made a good decision to not to cut. Yes. That. Less is definitely more with what they're doing here. And I'm with you. It definitely has a little bit of that, but like that, that sort of white guilt feeling to it. But I also don't know what other note they could have possibly ended this thing on because outside of doing like a big romantic ending with Hawkeye and, you know, Cora riding off into the sunset, which I just don't think would have worked. Uh, no. There just really aren't too many other directions they can go. No, and that is the thing is like, you know, uh, you know, it is, it is some ways it is interesting that like, you know, <laughs> the movie doesn't kill off Chingachgook. Yes. Um, it's, it's surprising that, um, you know, we make the decision to not do that. Um, and, uh, to not like, you know, give Hawkeye the final, uh, climactic battle. Uh, you know, so like, it's a weird ending. It's a very mixed ending, especially it's, it's also just weird seeing kind of like Russell means who like had previously, like, you know, like he was like, you know, he was part of the takeover Alcatraz Island. He was part of the Mayflower two takeover. He did, you know, um, uh, God, there's a couple other things, but like big time member of aim, 
Um, and then, you know, suddenly he's, you know, kind of the sad Indian at the end of the white people movie. Yeah. Um, then it becomes Pocahontas's dad. Yeah. And then he kind of like later goes on to be like, you know, I think Disney did a good movie and it's just like, mm, wrestle means you're old. Um, and like, there is like, you know, there's, there's some truth to like, you know, it's like, okay, like Russell means, did he, you know, respect your elders, but also acknowledge that sometimes your elders, um, you know, aren't, they, they're, they're from the past and yep. they, they need to, you know, mature with you. I think the only tidbit about him I remembered at all was that like part of his split from the larger aim movement had to do with the fact that he had extremely libertarian politics so I feel like at some point, like, it's just, yep, nope. I mean, look, they, they came together under a common cause, but like, like all, you know, like all other groups, like inevitably there are people with different viewpoints and different, you know, different approaches. And his did not, I guess, jive as well with the, you know, the larger aim movement after a certain point. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, also, I think some of the stuff in that text, um, I think the movie overall is so elegiac. Like, you don't need to come out and say it, right? Like, it feels like a speech written for like a test audience. It's, it came away from being like, I don't know what I was supposed to get out of that. Yeah. And I but mean, also, here, yeah. It's also on. weird because, like, at coming where it does after that, like, weird, like, you know, tone poem of an, of, you know, <laughs> of like the ending sequences, it's kind of like, well, wait, why are we doing this now? Like, why didn't we do this like, kind of like in the middle of the movie? <laughs> why didn't we state the thesis up front, uh, and then we can end with the weird, like you know, silent film? Like there is a certain like dramatic flavor to having the titular line at the very end of the movie, but I, yeah, I, I think it's fine. But like, it has a very much a, it's an ending. We got there. You know, it's not like a big triumphant feeling and it's certainly not like a, you know, like a deeply emotional moment. It just kind of feels like, well, we went through all that. That's it. It is like. I don't know, I I um, I enjoy the strangeness of the Daniel Ma. And I enjoy sort of the release that comes because the thing is, this is also kind of the first scene that isn't super intense in about like 35 minutes, 40 minutes of runtime. That's fair. Um, like this movie has been sort of clenched uh, like pretty much since they crest the hill and come into view of Fort William Henry. Certainly it's been uh, like, at running at breakneck breakneck pace uh, since the uh, since the ambush of the retreating British column, um, but yeah, I, I just feel like I think at times the how's we put this? Um, I think by nineteen ninety two standards, um, the film sensibilities are pretty spot on uh in terms of like what it's trying to get at um what it's trying to communicate about like who the people were 
that existed before sort of the westward expansion uh, in in sort of the the, the first flush of uh, American independence. Um, the funny thing is also can't it can't square that with the fact that the movie thinks it's pretty good that America will be independent, that these that these colonials will be masters of this country and throw off the British yoke. Um, and those two things don't really go together. You know, we have that whole heated scene where Cora says if, you know, I, and I think this is probably this is the mo- most ahistorical thing uh, where people are basically anticipating and articulating the arguments of uh, the American Revolution um, probably way before those become sort of mainstream. But nevertheless, this is a movie about the American Revolution uh, in a lot of key ways. But fundamentally, it's also like, and that's pretty good. Uh, the, you know, colonial militia and such, uh, all very like figures of great sympathy. Um, and so it can't quite, the thing it can't quite bring itself, can't quite bring into focus is that if not these people, then the people that they're paving the way for will fully adopt a genocidal colonial project um, that whatever this moment is where you can have these frontier communities sort of making peace with each other and living side by side um, is inherently fragile one. And once like colonial conflict departs and once like independence is guaranteed for these people, um, that bargain is not going to be upheld. And so I, th- I think that's sort of one of the conflicts running through this film is like, it's very, it's very sad about the ending of this moment and the possibilities it represents and the possibilities that like, there is a version of a like different future here and national identity uh, where like these like different, like people from these different uh, civilizational backgrounds uh, like find a way to coexist. It can't, it, it's, it's mostly sad about that, but it's also very pointedly like doesn't, it can't, it doesn't want to find a villain in that story. And fortunately by being located in 1757, maybe you don't fully have to, um, maybe you can hand wave and be like, it's the lack of economic opportunity given to working people everywhere. I don't know. That seems to be maybe what man is trying to get at with the Camerons. <laughs> Uh, but I think sort of hanging over this film is that in the end, people like the Camerons, uh, when push comes to shove, won't side with this little frontier community that they're a part of. It will be taking the side of racial conflict. And the movie mostly just adopts a tone of elegy because it's easier to do that than sort of deal with what's coming. And I think that's maybe the that's. Maybe too much to put on one film, uh, especially <laughs> a romping romantic adventure. Uh, but nevertheless, like that's kind of what I get here at the end. Uh, it's I mean, it's nodding it's also, at these things. It's also pretty funny because the movie does like you know basically comes out and says it's like yep, Indian's gone, and it's like well, but also all the look, motherfucker, you put a bunch of natives in your movie. Like shout out yep. to this movie for casting a shit ton of natives. Um, but <laughs> but the the, the core because you know the movie is yep. One day, natives are going to be gone. Not one native left. Um, but then, of course, it's casting a bunch of natives in a period film from, you know, yeah, nearly 300 years ago. 
So it's complicated. Um, um it is. Uh, you're t- nine seconds away from three hours. All right, we'll just wait nine seconds. <laughs> no, uh, I think for me though, this is still like for me personally, this is still very high up in like the Michael Mann hierarchy. I'm curious where it lands for you. Uh, is this shortlisted for like one of the best? Uh, you know, where 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 does it land for you as we as we wrap this up? It's a lot better than I initially remembered it being, which is to say that I I remember liking it at the time, but not necessarily having any super strong feelings about it. I think on a technical level, it was a lot more impressive than I gave it credit for. And, you know, we've talked a lot about Wes Studi and Madeline Stowe and just about every actor in this movie other than Daniel Day-Lewis, which is I feel like is a thing we never do about Daniel Day-Lewis performances. They are always extremely front and center. And I kind of appreciate the fact that his role in this movie just feels like it it works in lockstep with everything else. And it is not Daniel Day-Lewis like preening for the camera, looking at how much acting he can do throughout the entire movie. No, because yeah. the most the most important thing here is Daniel Day Lewis's hair. Yes. And it and is especially majestic. the parts like the 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 romantic scenes between him and Madeline Stowe, where their hair even like their hair makes love with one another and they just form this like very like chestnut colored cousin it. <laughs> God, you're right. Like I'm sorry. This is like, every time they, they were like the, the, when they decided to make out, I'm just like you're making a cousin it. Oh my god! But like I'm never gonna unsee that. It. Nope. I mean, I haven't been following all of your Michael Manathon, so I'm not sure where this fits in my. How uh, dare man- you? In my manthology. Uh, <laughs> yes, thank you, Troy. <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, I haven't seen this movie in 20 years, uh, and I didn't. I think I liked it better 20 years ago, but then after watching a lot of other adaptations and of uh, this film, this is a really good adaptation because it changes kind of the right things and takes out the right things. It, I mean, there's a whole character, this a uh, uh, song master in the book who's just cut out entirely. Uh, but we don't here, which, get which we don't great. get um, Hawkeye in the bear suit. We don't, we don't get yeah we don't get him disguised as a bear which I think is a great <laughs> part of the novel um, and you think of the other '90s adaptations of classic American literature you have Roland Joffe's uh, Scarlet Letter in '95 and Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow in '99 and this looks really really good uh, which Papa also Binks. featured um, uh, Haywood. Yeah, that is right. Uh, it is. It, it's a movie without a lot going on. It is really a '90s action movie uh, in many ways. There, I mean, Ch- 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 *Chariots of Fire* doesn't have as much running as this movie does, <laughs> as they you know go from place to place. It is, but it is such a tech. It's a, such a technical marvel. So well directed, so well shot, so well scored uh, that it's it, it has to rank very high on a list of you know. Uh, historical epics of the of the era. Yeah, I think this is um, this is the like if if you know this is the one I couldn't walk away from. Uh, if it was like you'd only keep your very favorites, mm-hmm. I think there's a number I would rate ahead of this one. Like I would but- put Manhunter and I would put Thief over this one, at least in terms of like personal favorites. Yeah, 
but I think in the overall list, it would still be in the top half for me. It's yeah, it's tough for me. I, uh, I love so much of this movie that it's like, it's just one of those things like this is kind of my point of entry into Michael Mann in a lot of ways. So it ends up being, uh, a, a thing I return to a lot. Um, Though I, though I do sort of see its its limitations uh, more more clearly now, uh, man. Though I certainly wish uh, they had the bear suit scene, and they could have made Daniel Day Lewis with his method actor bullshit. <laughs> uh, just we'd be hearing on the commentary, you know, like our prop master suggested he uses build a rubber bear suit, but Daniel, um, with his commitment, um, he wore that bear suit every day on set <laughs> for a month just to get used to it. Um, it was incredible. I, I think that I, I I'm, I'm sad we didn't get that version of the production, um, but I, I can sort of see why. I guess the other thing we can't say about Daniel Day Lewis because it is belabored a bit in the commentary. That man learned <laughs> learned to load and fire a antique uh, colonial pattern rifle um, ages ago. So he, you know, again that that commitment to the craft. It uh, is impressive realism. watching him, like you know, like actively, like you know, work with you know. The, this this rifle um even while running um in a lot of the shots and it's just like okay yeah good for you you and did the homework and it's not for like it's very funny that it's hard to imagine an actor more perfectly suited to a michael mann production in a lot of ways because he's like i want to learn to do all of it myself uh but at the same time on the commentary michael mann's like you know he has such a intense process that i respect so much but it's so all-consuming and not altogether pleasant. That's the and thing, course- <laughs> is that Daniel Day-Lewis isn't a Michael Mann actor. He's a Michael Mann protagonist. Yes. Yeah. In it's, real yes. life. <laughs> and so he's like, we're still great friends. They have never worked together since. Nope. Uh, so, <laughs> and Michael Mann likes to work with the same people. He likes his his little theater company vibe. Yeah, West Duty uh, comes back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We need it again. Uh, Heat Two, make it about West Duty's character. We, there's still there's still time. There's still time. Uh, I've seen him in so like I think I saw him in some stuff a few years ago. Uh, he's he's seventy four. He's still pretty spry. Mm-hmm. Get him out yeah. there. Um. All right, so I think we will leave it there. Um, that was a that was a meaty bit of man hunting. I would say the hunt has been very did good a, to us. We did a podcast that was as long as Michael Mann's original cut of this movie. <laughs> so much longer, <laughs> uh, brother. We honor your your practical effects. Uh, we are sorry to dissect you in excruciating detail, <laughs> um, but but we we had to do it. Um, but this Holy will not shit. be the last of the Michael Mann podcasts. No, and I'm I tremble to think of the length of the one that's upcoming. Oh, boy. how we're going to handle that because it's actually two movies in yes. one. Because it's time, right? We're we're there now. We are. So we skipped over. We fucked up. Also, we skipped Jericho Mile, and apparently we shouldn't have. So maybe we have to do Jericho Mile at some point. I don't know. Uh, get back to me on that. But, okay. but. Chronologically, the next movie's Heat. But Alex, you cut a proviso out early in the planning for this. That you can't just discuss Heat. No. And believe me, I want to discuss Heat. I love Heat. Heat is genuinely... Okay, maybe Thief actually overtook it over the course of this. But Heat was was my introduction to Michael Mann. And 
The problem is that Heat does not stand alone. Heat has a predecessor, and that predecessor is the television movie L.A. Takedown, which is one of the only examples I can point to of a filmmaker straight up filming and producing a rough draft of one of his greatest films for television. We should normalize this, honestly. Um, Probably benefited by it. And the fact that he, as we will see, he's already played with a lot of the beats that are going to come up in Heat uh, in earlier works. But uh, yeah, so it's time for us to start uh, tackling Heat. Um, And we will get to that uh, next month, starting with L.A. Takedown. Uh, And then we will we will dig into dig in the heat. Now, I don't know how we'll top one heat minute. Um, I guess we can do (laughs) one heat 30 seconds uh, and this project will just take the rest of our lives. But I I, I guess we can't do that. Uh, So if you really wanted to hear people discuss heat the way it was intended to be discussed, of course, listen to one heat minute where they break down the film one minute at a time um, and get an increasingly impressive roster of guests on that podcast. Uh, But our humble effort will begin soon with LA takedown. Uh, So until then, thanks for listening and subscribing to waypoint plus and putting up with five star runtimes about uh, 1992 historical epics and all our extremely specific bullshit.